Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast where we spend all of our time talking about skincare. Now, personally, and a lot of people say this is a bad idea, I enjoy using concentrated chlorine with a little bit of ammonia. Oh, um, it just cleans the pores. It cleans the grout. It, it, it gets all of that pesky code out of your lungs. Um, you know, uh, uh, an entire generation of British and German and French boys all agree chlorine gas does the trick. How are we doing? What what's this episode about? Not Hi, that. welcome welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast okay. about things falling apart <laughs> and how we can maybe put them back together. Oh, I'm good. Garrison. Um, I'll be I'll be leading leading this sode. Um, with me is 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 Chris and uh this this random person that we brought on uh from the street named Robert. Yep. Um, and we'll be talking about some things that are 
not great and kind of current problems. We, we uh, sure will. <laughs> so I I spent I spent a lot of my formative youth uh, lurking, uh, studying, and kind of documenting some of the some of, some of the bad places on the internet. You know, uh, Nazi chat rooms, chan sites, hate, hate Facebook hate groups. You know, whatever. The, all all of all the things. Um, and you know, growing up in Portland, Oregon, in like the twenty teens, this, this was this was something that felt kind of foisted upon me. As as a kid, discovering my own queerness and uh, coming out of a, an extremely homophobic, uh, like insular Christian community. Um, meanwhile, in Portland, having you know self-described fascist march alongside gay-hating Christians on my city streets, Nazis murdering people on our public transit. You know that uh, that 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 put a lot of uh, fellow fellow scrawny gay kids uh, to put on black black hoodies and balaclavas. Uh, to Mason fight far right extremists that were like two to three times their size, um, but the problem is, of course, uh, one hundred pound depressed teens aren't aren't necessarily the best brawlers um, under under some circumstances. Although they can handle a, 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 a fire extinguisher filled with paint pretty well. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> um, but a, a lot of us also started doing like online research and stuff. Um, to find like the names and addresses of like fascists and members of hate groups and all, all that kind of all that kind of stuff. I, I I still remember the kind of the 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 thrill and the buzz of my first like big find uh, as as a as a baby online lurker. Um, it was it, I think it was it was the leader of the uh, hell shaking street preachers who was living in oh, Tillamook, Oregon at the that time. Fucking prick. That that was that was the first guy I did. Um and I, I remember being very excited being cuz yeah, he was he was a massive asshole. Um so yeah, he, he's you know, he's like a, you know, very extremely homophobic quote-unquote yeah. street preacher. Just a big old chode. Yeah. But a lot of like this like online research work wasn't wasn't just cross-referencing social media posts with the white pages, property records, and voter registrations to send nice postcards to hate group members. Uh, t- time was often spent tracking the use of like memes and cataloging and sharing uh, uh, fascists' uh, plans for projects and events, keeping keeping tabs on like their current propaganda trends that online white supremacists were were trying to were trying to push, and. Um, one of one of the things that I, I came across about about two years ago was called Operation Pride Fall. This was this is one of the one of the one of, one of these like it, it was an organized campaign ran by people on 4chan, Discord, and Telegram. I, I came across it a few a few days after the the plans were published online. And if you already know what Operation Pride Fall is, or or have heard that term before. Uh, and if you're, you know, like me and we're on similar online spaces, you've you've probably found the past few months of anti-queer propaganda, uh, the massive increase in the gay and trans people are groomer shit and the uh, uh, shutters uh, kink at pride discourse to be all very, very predictable, uh, a, a strangely familiar, like the worst case of deja vu. And in large part, uh, the result of years of work behind the scenes by, by social engineering uh, online bigoted trolls and self-described fascists. So we're gonna we're gonna talk today about kind of the overlap between this this thing called Operation Pridefall, uh, the groomer discourse, and how that kind of feeds into kinkit pride discourse. So three things that are not great that don't go great to, oh, that actually do kind of go great together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, so, yes. So. Um, a, a first, first of all, a little, a little background on the whole recent groomer thing. 
because we haven't actually discussed uh, the groomer stuff in depth on the pod yet. Um, we sure haven't. You know why we haven't? Because I hate it. Yeah. Sucks. It's <laughs> true. I mean, like, whenever like horrible things happen in the news, I try to push back on just releasing an episode immediately covering it in case we have something like actually good to say. <laughs> um, so we've kind of waited to talk about uh, the groomer discourse stuff for a long time. Um, and I think now is is totally is totally fine uh, to do so because we've had we've had months to let it uh, to let it simmer. Look at like the types of things they're encouraging. Look at all of like the um, physical action they're trying to do. And with Pride Month approaching, we're going to see a resurgence of it in the next few weeks here. Um, so, as mentioned in our uh, in in our week long War on Trans People episodes, uh, which was released like right before the new wave of the groomer shit accelerated. But in, in those episodes, we talked about the long history of conservatives and evangelical organizations promoting the false narrative targeted at parents and like concerned citizens that gay people, especially gay men, uh, are more likely to be child predators than their heterosexual counterparts. Uh, along with the idea that queer people are out to, quote, groom your definitely 100% straight child into being gay, right? Uh, so in, insinuating that they, that they can then, like, have sex with them or something. Um, it's But, yeah, they're trying to scare parents to be like, gay people are out to get your kids! Um, so it's the, the, the actual, like, idea of what being a groomer means changes based on who you're talking to. Um, in part two, I'm going to gonna quote a con conservative writer who, like, admits this as, as such, but still defends the use of the term. Mm -hmm. um, because at the very least, if they, they use grooming within the context of turning your, again, absolutely, completely heterosexual child totally. um, into a gay person, thus they would, you know, begin to hate you and resent you as a parent for your godly Christian values. They also consider that grooming. Um, it's not, it's not, it's not actually just... As a general rule, the attitude is if they do not turn out to be the exact kind of weirdo Christian as their parents, they were groomed by somebody, and it's merely a matter of picking the topic, the person to blame. Yeah, and all of that sort of rhetoric was extremely popular uh, through, like, the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. Um, but then came the knots in the 20-teens, and this, this, this kind of had an attitude shift, and some of that started to go away. We got, we got Queer Eye, we got Ellen, uh, the rate of conversion therapy started to decline, uh, it was getting banned in more states, there was more queer acceptance in certain, in certain sects of the church even. Of course, gay marriage went national in 2015, and eventually being like aggressively homophobic became like not a good look. Uh, it, it, did, it was not... You were not able to do that anymore um, and still be able to have and, 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 and do it as like nonchalantly as you were as you used to be able to, whether that's in your like TV show or whether that's you as a corporation um, or, you know, some uh, random other sectors of public life. But then, of course, Trump got elected 2016, a uh, year after gay marriage went national. And then there's this resurgence in far right extremism. And the more kind of commonly accepted kind of nonchalant gay bashing of old gets passed down to the next freak down the line, which is trans people. So with that, the, the adage of like the disgusting groomer freaks are going to turn your kids gay turns into the gender ideology freaks are going to turn your kids trans. It's all the same stuff just passed on to the next to the next thing. Um, and so we have that like anti-trans and therefore anti-queer hate festering for a few years. 
And this inevitably opens up the door to just a revival of classic homophobia. Um, even even liberals like Friend of the Pod, J.K. Rowling, um, and lots of the original TERFs got to apply the same homophobic rhetoric to trans people um, and gender nonconforming folks, which then obviously results in that propaganda and rhetoric being used to attack LGBTQ people on a whole once again. So it, it's, it's resurrecting these old homophobic tropes and just applying it to a new generation of queer people. Um, and uh, so for this next part, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about libs of TikTok because they, they, they did play a big, a big part in what's, what's some current discourse is today. And I, I promise we'll get to Operation Pridefall here shortly. Just, ha just ha hang in there with me. Uh, but before we talk about, again, other friend of the pod, libs of TikTok, um, do you know what else wants to turn your kids gay? Oh, are you talking about the Washington State Highway Patrol? Because yes, they absolutely do garrison. That's the one guarantee the Washington State Highway Patrol makes. They'll make your kids gay. Okay, Libs of TikTok joins the fight. They, they, God, and, and, I, I, and, I, let's just take a moment to acknowledge how fucking frustrating it is that we have to discuss seriously I know. Libs of I know. TikTok, that it matters. I know. Like, the worst. It's I terrible. Know. It's terrible. I uh, people always criticize the show for being like, why do they talk about all these dumb social media things? So like, yes, I know that they're stupid, but the the bad part is, is that they actually matter. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they... maybe, yeah, we talk about them because of the 17-year-old trans girl in Texas who just got assaulted by like five dudes because she was blamed on the shooting and she was blamed for the shooting because in part of a lot of shit that libs of TikTok helped to stir up, stir up. Ugh, because they proved there was a market for it, that if you're like a right-wing shit grifter, attacking trans people is a great way to get engagement. Anyway, sorry, Garrison. Yeah, so <sighs> libs of TikTok is a social media account turned social media campaign started in April of 2021 by a Brooklyn area real estate agent named Chaya Rychik. Um, who, by the way, attended the January 6th attempted fascist insurrection. Um, when, when, when violence broke out that day at the Capitol, she actually tweeted a play-by-play -play on a previous Twitter account of hers, uh, posting videos from the crowd and uh, talking about tear gas and rubber bullets being like shot right next to her. Um, and then after she left the riot, she, t she tweeted on Twitter that, uh, that the, the event was peaceful compared to a BLM protest. So that's... Yes. Anyway, uh, five yeah, five people died. Um, we we so. yeah, we we've 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 now reached the part of it. We're 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 now in tragedy of as farce of the thing that happens in every single state yes. that goes fascist, where all the fascists try to do a coup and it fails, and then nothing happens, and then they take over the state like yeah. years later. Except our version of that, instead of like I don't know, weird fascist yakuza guys, it's the libs of TikTok. It is the libs of TikTok. So. <sighs> The libs of TikTok was around like the third attempt by uh, Rychik to start a viral social media account. Uh, you know the saying, third time's the charm, uh, but in this case it actually was. So the account's gimmick is uh, reposting and often grossly misrepresenting select clips from quote-unquote libs uh, on TikTok. You know, big, big shocker, big, big, big surprise. Uh, but th m more often than not, that really just means posting videos of queer kids and trans people, uh, captioning it with something reactionary, and then leading a targeted harassment campaign against those individuals. Uh, on, on May 31st, 2021, so just about a year ago, uh, she made her first grooming-related post, just tweeting, STOP GROOMING KIDS in all caps. This is the first time she tweeted anything related to grooming. 
Um, the day before that, she tweeted a video of a trans person um, alongside the vomit emoji and a caption that just says, men should not wear dresses, you can't change my mind. Her first super viral uh, video related to LGBTQ people was later in June, uh, next month during Pride, uh, by posting a TikTok of a kid explaining the concept of gender fluidity, a pretty, pretty basic concept. Uh, but she uh, lives, lives of TikTok commented, this is so messed up in so many ways. Uh, her, her post racked up half a million views and indicated to her that the way to grow her little social media project into a right-wing viral sensation was going to be with homophobia and transphobia. Uh, this, this is how she decided to continue her online career, essentially. She called the uh, prominent LGBTQ uh, youth suicide prevention group, The Trevor Project, a, a grooming organization. And towards the end of 2021 and into 2022, she kept using that term, grooming, groomer, uh, at, at, a, at an ever-increasing rate, right? It's, it's, it starts, starts in like May and June of 2021, continues throughout the summer and fall, and then in the fall and winter, she starts really kicking up all of the stuff around around grooming and queer people. I mean, all of her posts are already mostly about trans people and like trans people at schools. Um, obviously, she was a big part of like the the whole school board thing from last year. So, but towards the end of twenty twenty one, though, is when uh, the the groomer thing started becoming more of a recurring trend. Uh, quoting qu quoting Slate. Uh, toward the end of 2021 and into the new year, Rychek found her rhythm with memes and videos calling LGBTQ people and those who supported LGBTQ youth, quote-unquote, groomers. She has even attempted to smear one of the most prominent gay men in the country as a groomer. Uh, in a deleted tweet, Rychek's account accused Transportation Secre Secretary Pete Buttigieg's husband, Chastin, uh, of grooming kids for his work at at supporting LGBTQ youth Look, organizations. This isn't fair, but I hate that his name is Chastin. I know. I, I know. don't like. I don't like that name. I don't, I don't like that name. I'm, I'm not sorry. a big. That I'm, has I'm nothing not a, to do with anything. I'm not a Chastin stan either. But oh, yes. it's so shocking. But but yeah, it's like finding <laughs> the most prominent Libby gay men and being like, hey, these people probably groom kids, and you know that that obviously riles up their base. Oh, yes. Um, She's she's called for any teacher who comes out as gay to their students to be quote fired on the spot, uh, which actually has happened since then. Uh, sure this has. Is, this has happened multiple times since 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 this account has been has been launched. Um, the, the account's popularity grew alongside uh, last year's racist, homophobic, and transphobic attacks on school boards across the country. She would often posting videos of queer teachers and lying about them grooming kids into being gay or whatever. Uh, she was promoting organized harassment campaigns against those teachers, uh, in interspersed with tweets and screenshots of news articles about teachers who sexually assaulted students. Importantly, not posting the article, but just like a screenshot of the headline along with comments like, funny how this keeps happening, which is like neglects to mention that like all these incidents are from heterosexual teachers uh, or like that one story from last year of a cop and his wife who was a teacher working together to sexually abuse children. Like none of them are actually oh, yeah. about gay people. It's all, like I mean, <laughs> I'm not certain if a school resource officer has ever stopped a mass shooting, but I know that something like 50 of them have been fired for molesting kids. Yeah. <laughs> so but like, it's, 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 it's really, it's really insidious because mm -hmm. she's, she's posting all this stuff about, you know, teachers grooming kids uh, you know, in, into being like queer teachers grooming kids, like, uh, 
alongside headlines of teachers actually assault, like sexually sexually assaulting kids, but those headlines are all of stories about heterosexual teachers. <laughs> like, but you know, she, so she posts both of those things. So it's like a to like to have this correlation for for her audience, despite them not actually being related because yeah lips of tiktok sure ain't posting about how cops should be kept away from kids for the safety of the children um yeah, and they're, they're they're never going to post about how many people who do no. the grooming stuff have been arrested because like several of the organizers of 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 this whole like gay people are like grooming kids thing like have been arrested for child abuse since this started which yeah show up. <sighs> no it's not it's never it's never gonna <sighs> matter but you know, posting and lying about queer teachers grooming children next to headlines about teachers sexually abusing kids to manufacture this correlation, which is, of course, false, but it's still highly effective. Now, believe me, I would love to not talk about Twitter nonsense, but unfortunately, Twitter accounts like Lips of TikTok actually do play a massive role in shaping offline conservative politics. Uh, Libs of TikTok was very soon being interviewed by New York Post, being boosted by Joe Rogan, going on Tucker Carlson. Uh, other Fox News hosts like Jesse Waters began featuring content straight from the Libs of TikTok Twitter feed. Uh, and Tucker encouraged his viewers to follow the account before it's banned if you want to know, quote, what may be happening in your child's school. Last March, when Libs of TikTok posted a video of a woman teaching sex ed to kids in Kentucky, like, you know, preteens or whatever, uh, she called the woman a, a predator. And the next evening, the same clip was featured on Laura Ingram's Fox News program with the host saying, when did our school, any of any schools, become, become what are essentially grooming centers for gender identity radicals? Um, so yeah, this is just content straight from Lisa TikTok being put onto the most watched news programs in the world. Um, and as we'll see, also being taken in by some of the most powerful conservative politicians. Uh, mainstream conservative politicians quickly joined in in the tooting of the libs of TikTok grooming horn. Uh, obviously, uh, Ron DeSantis is a big, big part of this. Uh, one of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's uh, top aides and press secretary is a huge fan of libs of TikTok um, and is uh, in frequent communication with them. Quoting the Washington Post, quote, by March 2022, libs of TikTok was directly impacting legislation. Ron DeSantis's press secretary, Christina Hershaw credited the account with, quote, opening her eyes and informing her views on the state's restrictive legislation that bans discussion of sexuality or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade, referred to critics as the don't say gay bill. The bill has been, uh, unquote. So this bill has has already been used to get middle school teachers fired uh, for 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 saying that they are not straight. Um, and you'll notice that middle school is not in kindergarten through third grade. Uh, so remember when we were all saying, hey, the actual, it actually doesn't matter that the bill says it's only up for kindergarten through third grade. It's just going to be applied for anyone. Yeah, turns out we were right. Uh, so it's this, the bill's already been specifically cited in the firing of, mul of multiple teachers from Florida, uh, for, for, uh, just not, not, you know, conforming to the heterosexual Christian hegemonic worldview. And Libs of TikTok is still currently among the most prominent influencers affecting actual material conditions and shaping both the rhetoric and propaganda while impacting legislation. Um, friend of Libs of TikTok uh, and DeSantis's press secretary, Christina Pershaw, has said, quote, The bill that liberals inaccurately call Don't Say Gay would be more accurately described as an anti-grooming bill. 
If you're against the anti-grooming bill, you probably are a groomer, or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Silence is complicity. This is oh, how boy. it works, Democrats. <laughs> this is how it works, Democrats, and I didn't make the rules. So yeah, see, see how we have, see, see how that works? You call, you call the don't say gay bill a anti-grooming bill, so then everyone, anyone who criticizes it is now a groomer. Isn't, isn't that a fun way to play with words? Isn't that nice? That is a fun way to play with words, Garrison. Uh-huh. I love it. <laughs> so the, the past few months, we've seen this, you know, queer people are groomers meme reach seemingly uh, never, never before seen heights. And, uh, and at least is, is, and at the very least is the highest and most memetic it's ever been in the past two decades. Uh, you know, it's, and it's really building off of all of the kill your local p- pedophile shit, right? It sure is. It's it's the, Robert. Do you want to briefly briefly talk about kill your local local yeah, pedophile? I mean, it's a bunch of bumper stickers. It's a slogan. Like I know dudes who are not at all fascists and say that because they're like new dads and they're horrified at the. But like the whole, like the core of it is this right wing, and it kind of started off in like the sort of libertarian gun nut communities. But it's it's it's. It's really used a lot as sort of it's a group that you can talk about doing anything to. You can talk about killing, you can like fetishize murdering. Um, and if you can then like define other groups as inherently pedophilic, then you can do anything to them, right? Like that's the basic idea is if you, if you yeah. get people saying it's always okay to use vigilante violence against this group, um, and obviously no one's gonna fucking defend child molesters, but then you start making the case that people who are not in fact molesting children are somehow pedophiles or, you know, or somehow related to pedophiles. And then suddenly it's okay to kill them. It's okay to do violence. Massive social groups, like all of gay and trans people. So if if you conflate these two things, you're able to make these things represent the same thing in someone's mind, that makes homophobia now not a bad thing, but like a moral imperative. Like you have to be homophobic because these people are grooming children. Yep. And and you you can get, you get this interesting thing too, which like there are people who are like not quite as far in who will do who will say you'll, 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 I see things a lot where it's like someone's like oh well I don't have a problem with gay people but like they shouldn't groom kids and it's like yep this is that's well, not what's happening great. bro yeah no <laughs> I do you know do you know what else doesn't groom kids. <laughs> I mean, the Washington State Highway Patrol definitely does, Garrison. But let me tell you, if you want somebody to groom your children, the Washington Highway State Highway Patrol will do that. But you know what they won't do is protect those children in the event of danger because that might endanger them. So, no, well, look, look. Sometimes, sometimes, right? Someone is tr- someone is killing your kid, and you need to get pepper sprayed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when that time calls. You you will beg for the Washington Highway State Patrol. Well, you'll beg for a different police department, but when those police get in trouble because of their failure to act, then the Washington State Highway Patrol will show up to protect those cops. Anyway, here's here's the ads. We are back. Um so as the queer people are groomers shit was reaching the most mimetic and the highest rate of 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 trending that it's that it has had in, in decades, this past April at the height of the recent increased wave of anti-queer legislation and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, um, this this is when some terminally online teenagers tried to start kink at pride discourse once again. And I 
I do not want to talk about this, but I've written stuff about it, so I'm going to. <laughs> this was le- legitimately when I was like thinking about, I like realized I was gay, and I was like, oh my god, I should come out. And then I would my like one of the things that I spent a long time thinking about was, does this mean I have to do can't get pride discourse? And this for is a long, like a serious for a consideration time, I for me. For a long time, I would have said no, of course not. I'm never going to do this. <laughs> Why no, would I do that? We're doing it live. But here we are. <laughs> so anyway, uh. Doing kink, doing kink at Pride discourse uh, then, and even still now, while the anti-queer onslaught is accelerating at the highest pace it's had in years, uh, sure seems to be like dumping fuel on the fire. Uh, what's up with that, kids? Why? Uh, so anyway, uh, th- the discourse itself revolves around whether uh, kink apparel or paraphernalia uh, render the Pride space unsafe for minors or quote-unquote non-consensual observers. Uh, heavy heavy quotation marks there by the way uh but also it is heavily rooted in assimilationist and respectability politics and a push for lgbtq people to be seen as uh more acceptable or more normal while still existing in a heteronormative society um and now obviously i'm not a fan of this discourse happening in the first place especially now like why are you doing it now during all the groomer stuff stop it that's Stop it. Don't do that. Quit it. Why are you doing this? Uh, but first of all, I also want to point out how this entire discourse runs on the same train of thought that fuels all of this groomer stuff in the first place. It, it, it's, it's picking at the same part of human brains. So here's I'm, I'm going to read this post that went super viral about a month ago that, that, sparked, that sparked the new wave of this uh, much, much frustrated discourse. Quote, LGBTQ youth being uncomfortable with kinks at pride is not homophobia. Kinks at pride might have been fine if this was still the 1900s, where adults were the only ones attending pride, but it's not the 1900s anymore, and now kids are way more involved in celebrating our identities. The celebrating our identities part there is really important, and we'll, we'll talk about this more soon, but largely in the past like 20 years there's been this shift with queerness and sexual orientation being less about who you fuck and more like a personality aspect or a social identity with a branded aesthetic um it's it's this it's like it's it's which is in some ways good like in some ways good that people are more able to express themselves however they want but you know kids at school aren't getting bullied for being gay anymore uh which again is good. Well, less uh, than they were. They're, they're getting bullied less, somewhat, depending on where you live. Yeah. But it's also kind of, it's made people forget the whole, like, uh, like gays bash back or gays don't bash back but shoot first. Like, it, it's forgot. We don't have, the, we, that's not as a core component of queerness anymore because queerness is now able to be kind of more safe and sanitized. Uh and it's it's a right it's like it's and it's 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 a personal identity in a way that it's n- it's not just about who you fuck anymore it's like this like personal identity aspect um which i'm not saying is bad it's just that there's this thing that's happened that's changed the way we talk about sexual orientation hey quick pause this is garrison from the future here just popping in to clarify a bit on what i mean regarding this note on identities and identifying as various shades of queer what I'm getting at is that when observing some of the baby queers around my age, or maybe a bit younger, queerness is seen as a more available option for young people 
when putting together their personality or sense of self, and more separated from the nitty-gritty details of who you fuck, now that queerness is generally more tolerated. Now, don't get me wrong, I do like the idea of being free to choose queerness. In, in many ways, I consider myself as having chosen to be gay. The thing about framing that as your quote-unquote personal identity, as opposed to simply choosing to be what you are, is that the former lets you wield that quote-unquote identity against other people or other queer people that disagree with you. It's, it's this thing where queerness is filtered through the lens of brands and like brand recognition, which is definitely made worse by social media, dating apps, personal profiles, and personal bios. And it's part of this cultural push to like have everyone create their own personal brand. And like, I don't want to identify as genderqueer. I just am genderqueer. I don't identify as gay. I just like catboys, therefore I am gay. It's a different ontological framing, and one that I think is less susceptible to heteronormative assimilationist ideas and like the capitalist marketing to queerness as a brand or as a market demographic. If your queerness is a personal identity that's more sanitized, more approachable for a heteronormative society, then you get to use your identity to attack gay people whose queerness is more based in deviant sexuality and alternative communities. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna read a, a, a the the follow up tweet to this to this thing that sparked the new discourse. Quote. Not even all LGBTQ adults are comfortable with seeing kinks at Pride. There's nothing from, there's nothing stopping you guys from adjusting or having after events strictly for adults who want to partake in that. Y'all need to adjust so that every LGBTQ person feels comfortable attending. So, let's let, let's just do some like queer history here for a sec. Uh, the the first Pride was a riot. Um, on, 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 on that night in June in 1969, nice, uh, the police raided the uh, Stonewall Inn, uh, one of the largest private, pr private gay clubs in the U.S. at the time. The patrons of the bar, uh, you know, trans women of color, homeless queer teens, drag queens, lesbians, and leather daddies fought back. Uh, lots of trans teenagers uh, threw bricks at cops, and like a fair number of those trans teenagers were also sex workers. Uh, kink, including, you know, like, leather daddies and lots of aspects that we now view as, as like, kink or BDSM, has been a part of Pride since its literal inception, like, way back in 1969. Um, and while, like, while drag isn't considered kink now in 2022, it still is considered sexually deviant, but back in, like, the 20th century... Uh, in, in, you know, in, in 1969, New York City still had laws that prohibited cross-dressing, so drag used to be way more kinky than it is now. Uh, and, like, basically all queer sex used to be unacceptable kink. And many yeah, it was illegal. It was literally yeah, or, illegal. Or, or just a crime. And yeah, it was a crime in Texas until... Like two thousand three, like the, I think the like still right, in the books. right around when I graduated high school. Two thousand three <laughs> was when the Supreme Court said also, that it, it's no longer an, an enforceable law. Also, in the it state might go of back Texas, to being it's illegal, illegal again. To, well, and it's illegal. To, it's still illegal to own more than five dildos. Yeah, I, is it six up. or is it five? I think it's five, but it might be six. So, like, all queer sex used to be unacceptable kink, and many logistical aspects of gay fucking used to happen in public. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to quote an article from them.us. Quote, 
For some people, gay rights and gay liberation do not hinge on particulars of sexual desire. For years, I've heard that we aren't just our erotic identities. But for many of us, it does begin there, and it does revolve around the ways we organize our erotic choices. Before LGBTQ plus people had pride parades, our community spaces were not just bars, but cruising spots like bathhouses, dungeons, and public restrooms. It should be no surprise that many queer folks find their sex lives and their sense of community to be intertwined. BDSM, subversive sexuality, and leather culture have enjoyed a long history within the LGBTQ rights movement. They are inherent expressions of queer culture and sexuality. Being free to signal your sexuality out in the open within a queer context is the entire point of pride." Unquote. So, like, all of this discourse around pride and kink of pride reflects a modern but regressive idea that sexuality is inherently damaging to see, experience, or think about in a public context, especially if that sexuality is inherently queer. And there's this other idea that we see a lot of in this type of discourse, and it's mirrored a little bit with like the groomer stuff too, that if you see someone quote unquote engaging in kink, and like in the case of pride, that's like what? Wearing a collar, a harness, or a pup mask, that just the act of observation is somehow a violation of consent. Uh, it, and it's really frustrating because indication of sexuality in a non vanilla sense while in public is not. A violation of consent like i didn't consent quote-unquote consent to see the rainbow cops right <laughs> but public indication of sexuality is not a consent violation and again indicating sexuality is like the entire point of pride weaponizing quote-unquote consent to call out people that we see but don't interact with who are quote-unquote dressed too sexual in our own mind is bad for multiple reasons. It also potentially dilutes legitimate claims of non-consent in cases of actual sexual violence. And it's it's like this thing, like, if you look at someone in a pup mask, there is no consent violation there. That's a really weird thing that people that people talk about. And it's not, it's not, like, I, I'm not trying to start fights on the internet uh, with, like, these tender queer children. Um, because, like, and I, I don't want anyone to find, like, these, like, you know, months-old posts and, st and start harassing these people. But that post has, like, over 30,000 likes and thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets. And it basically just repeats, like, old queer-bashing talking points that conflate kink and queer visibility with public sex that endangers children. And, like, ugh, conflating gays being visible and semi-clothed with being like dangerous to children are the same talking points that it gets used for book bans, conversion therapy, and the don't say gay bills, right? This idea that if you look at a gay person shirtless, that's dangerous to a kid. That's the same, that's the same underlying motivation that fuels all of this groomer discourse. Uh, it, it's, it's the whole thing where it's like, I'm okay with gay people. I just don't want to see it. Right. It's like that, th that, that idea in and of itself is like, is, is still like exists on that, you know, I didn't consent to look at it type of thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's this other other tweet from somebody being like, forcing people to see kicky stuff without consent is really weird. I'm sorry, but I don't want pup masks at pride events for families. I saw that shit in real life and it made me uncomfortable. Don't involve other people in their kinks if, if they don't consent. 
And like looking at someone in a mask isn't involving you in any of these kinks. You're, if you're looking also, at someone like, in a leather mask, that, like if that makes you uncomfortable, that that's your problem. You not don't anyone else's. have a right to not be uncomfortable with how people look or are in public. Look, every time I go out into the world, I see something that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I see a lot of people with children. Now, do I think it should be legal to have children? No, yes, but we it do. Is. I do think that it should be. It should be illegal, exactly. So I like look. We all have to deal with things that make us uncomfortable. Look, um, we, like we we have a clear solution here. The, the 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 way to deal with events not being family friendly is to get rid of families. That's exactly right. We have to eliminate the concept of the family. Yeah, come and, on, come on, come communist manifesto. What this is one hundred and one shit, people. We can, oh, we you, can were, do you were this. you were you were quoting from the communist manifesto, huh? Okay, that's interesting. That's that's not where I got it from. <laughs> but I I feel like. I feel like a lot of these people, many of them like young teens, who are complaining about being forced to look at quote unquote inappropriate things at Pride, have never actually been to a Pride. Yeah. Because <laughs> most of most of modern Pride is like really sanitized and chill. Like it's like it is it is overrun with corporate sponsors, politicians, and cops. Like you you are you you are way more likely to see armed police at like a Pride mm -hmm. march than you're than you'll be likely to see like tits or like gags or whatever like most i it's funny to me because like i started going to these and this is before the internet was what it was or moral panics were what they were but like in texas i would go to these events where there would be people of all ages and families these are like little burning regions people would be like at like uh on the big night when people are doing like the fire shows and the fireworks stuff people would be like fucking and like manning yeah. flamethrowers, like while having sex, there there were like there was a whole chunk of it that was just like the kink row, and you could walk down it and watch people get like whipped and fuck a sibian and stuff. It was just like I don't remember any of this fucking like the only discourse was like, well, okay, we should probably like make sure that people know where that kind of stuff mainly happens, so that like they don't have to walk around it if they don't want to. But like it was, but yeah, it's like this idea that like. Yeah. Not even full nudity, but like mm -hmm. semi nudity within a queer context is inherently more dangerous to children if it's if if it's in a queer context than a straight context, right? We have all of these even like queer kids come like complaining online like, about being forced to see things at Pride, which is like they would see way more skin if they went to like a beach in the summer. Like it's it's, it's, it's it, it revolves on the same homophobic idea that like if, if if you look at these things in a queer context that is like more adult than looking at it within a straight context. Yes, um, it's I don't know. Frustrating. Like, it's frustrating, and like another another reason why that I think many of these like baby leftist tender queers are who are who are crusading against kink at pride and complaining about like leather and or like sexy underwear um but lots of them even uh first of all most of them i think lots of them haven't been to pride because there hasn't really been pride for the past two years and lots of these people are like 15 years old um but a lot of them also just like admit to never be going to pride because they're too terrified to see a pup mask like they openly say, like I'm, I've never been because I had, don't want to see these things. I'm like, sure, you're allowed to do that, but then don't make, don't like, <laughs> don't campaign against King yeah. of Pride, which like, will look, result in your posts getting used by uh, like homophobic trolls and bigots. I don't go to Chicago likes. because I don't want to see a deep dish pizza, but I don't try to ban them. Like, like I understand time, that that's the thing you people like. Like the first time I saw a pup mask was at fucking Comic Con. 
Like it's like like you like it's not you don't see like banned pup masks from Comic Con. Like what? Like these these people like these kids are are basing their fears off of like a few viral photos that are often shared in a disingenuous context. Now we'll talk about these photos in a bit. But, you know, these these people are like 15 years old, have never been to Pride and are just like simply terrified of like actual sexuality. Like they they enjoy they they engage with queerness as like a personal identity and stuff. But once they get into like the nitty gritty of like sex, that makes them really uncomfortable because they're teens because they're kids. That That's OK. You can be uncomfortable with sex. That makes sense. That is that is appropriate for your age. But then don't make your entire online presence about trying to shut down this massive aspect of queer history um because like the kinky stuff that i've seen at pride is yeah on par with what you see at comic-con i often will see more more nudity at portland's comic-con than i than i will at any of the pride events i've been to um like all, all of the more like openly like f fetish folks or kinky folks are really responsible and act pretty appropriately at pride and, and the people who, like, say otherwise online generally just have not actually been to Pride in their entire life. Because, um, like, this complaining about, quote-unquote, like, inappropriate fetishes or, like, kinky conduct is basically code for I am uncomfortable with you being positive about the way you view sex and I want you to not show it and I want you to not, to, and I want you to not talk about it. Which is the same underlying thought process that people use to be homophobic. It's the, it's the exact same thing. Um... Now, a, a lot of this discourse oversimplifies kink and BDSM, um, right? Queerness can be about can be about love. It can be about it can be about sexual attraction, um, and both. Uh, or sometimes uh, for like asexual people, the in lacking one or the other, um, or both. Uh, but but by that same token, right? Kink, leather, and BDSM aren't all exclusively about sex. Uh, to a large extent, they're also about community building. Um, and I just think these these like earnest think of the youth arguments are very silly because uh, even when it comes to youth, because if you're uncomfortable with things, that's totally fine. But in a lot of cases, like queer teenagers also have sex uh, generally with other queer teenagers, sometimes even in a kinky context. And that's OK. Pride is about celebrating everyone's individual ability to do that. And I, I don't like it when when people just rehash old homophobic talking points to to and especially during during all of this all of this groomer discourse because a key key part of key part of kink a key part of like queer sex is is uh is consent and once you start you start conflating what consent is by saying that me looking at you wearing a collar is a violation of consent once you start undermining what consent actually means that's like not a good thing it's actually not a that is actually a bad thing especially right now during all of the during all of all of all of the groomer stuff so that is, we are, we've gone kind of over on, on time here, um, but uh, we're going to make, we're going to make this a two-parter. In the next episode, we'll talk a bit more about like tender queers and we'll actually get into the, the plans of Operation Pride Fall and talk about how we kind of got to this point because, man, there's a lot of kids sharing, uh, sharing pictures online and oh boy, do those pictures originate in some uh, dubious, dubious places. Um, so that 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 does it for us today. We will we will see you tomorrow. Um, Pride's fun. We should not police what other people do. So yeah. Anyway. Bye. Bye.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Get Up In Here. This is part two of our discussion on Operation Pride Fall and the Kink Up Pride discourse and the groomer stuff and how they all combine in this really horrifying, really way that I wish they didn't because it's pretty frustrating. So uh, last episode, I, I talked towards the end, I, I, I talked a decent amount about tender queers. Um, and I, I actually would like, would like to define this term here um, and kind of get into why these why these people are boosting these specific like talking points that are just kind of regurgitate old types of homophobic stuff they claim it doesn't but like it does you're using this exact same logic you're just kind of reframing it so tender queers are this this the type of like they're kind of like an in joke for like the queer community of this like personality type generally the, the tender queers are like a you know typically a gen z or a millennial queer more likely to be like femme, uh, whether that be like a woman, non-binary, or femme person, uh, l- l- lesbians, uh, you know, femme bisexuals, pansexuals, or like queer soft boys, kind of, 
they feature this like combination of personality, designation, and aesthetic. And they're known for being especially adept at using like watery language of therapy as a means to like get out of most things. Um, everything's about like holding space and healing and intimacy. And it's like it's wrapped up in this like jovial pastel bubbly package, right? If you throw in some astrology, some like corduroy overalls, shaved heads and round glasses, and you got yourself like a basic tender queer. And a little quote here from an author named uh, Daisy Jones from an, an, an article that they made. Quote, just like the straight soft boy who uses performative sensitivity to get away with being a little shit sometimes, so does the tender queer. <laughs> tender queer generally uh, refers to a trope in the queer community of a queer person who presents themselves as being sensitive, hypervocal of their feelings, sometimes thought of as prioritizing feelings in hyper-intentional language over uh, their own harm and privilege. So they, 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 they kind of use like identity politics to avoid accountability. There's like this um, competitive oppression and self-victimization. They, they, they center themselves and their feelings in social or political movements that aren't necessarily about them. They, they kind of, they prioritize ineffective methods of self-care. They utilize like gaslighting and dumping the emotional labor of dealing with your own self uh, onto, onto others. Like t tender queers are kind of, are, they're, they're known to like mask toxicity and manipulativeness in the performative language and aesthetics of, of social justice. They have this like performative, soft hypersensitivity and use identity politics to kind of uh, call out or avoid things that make them uncomfortable and will like and will publicly declare those things as problematic in, a, in an attempt to force others to conform with their own will. So that's why I describe a lot of these like younger younger teens um, who who use these talking points against against quote unquote kink at pride as tender queers because like they're they're people who are really sensitive about what makes them comfortable and they avoid any they try to avoid or campaign against anything that makes them uncomfortable and they use all these like performative turns of phrase and talking points to to avoid having actual discussions about it it's this like weaponization of their marginalized identity as a shield to avoid accountability or to deflect against people challenging them for abusive behavior or in in the in the in like the pride case this like internalized homophobia uh there's there's the uh these little little uh, tweet exchange for some from some people on the super viral uh a pride post from a month ago um I'm 14, and I don't want to see a half-naked person in leather straps in a gag at an event I take my family to. And someone replied, like, try glancing at a Mardi Gras or even a public beach before you apply homophobic double standards. And then they, this, the poster replied, you think I'm homophobic? I'm literally a trans non-binary lesbian? So again, this is... This is <laughs> So this is this is what I mean when I when I when I talk about tender queers, right? There, someone's calling them out for applying this homophobic d double standard on how they view like public semi-nudity, right? Not even like full nudity, just like how they view public semi-nudity, like a bikini or something, right? And then they they respond by saying, "I'm literally a trans non-binary lesbian," um, and then went on to say, "Also, people at those don't wear kink shit." And it's why I don't go to Mardi Gras or large public beaches. It makes me uncomfortable. Seeing a bunch of adults in kink shit being sexual just physically makes me ill. People at Mardi Gras and public beaches don't act sexual or wear kink shit. And so, like... <sighs> I 
feel like you haven't been to Mardi Gras, but that's the outside also, like, of the point. You will see way more skin at a public beach. Most king shit requ- like, requires covering your body in a lot of extra stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're wearing a harness or, like, a latex full leather outfit, you're, like, showing way less skin than someone wearing a Speedo or a bikini. So maybe you're just uncomfortable with people expressing their sexuality. Which, in case, don't go to Pride, because that's what Pride's all about. That's the entire point. But yeah, I, the, I, the, whole, the whole point, like, I'm literally a trans, non-binary lesbian. Like, that's, like, such, such a perfect encapsulation of what the tender queer kind of trope is. Um, and like not 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 many people like self self identify as as tender queers. It's kind of this joke that the more kind of punky uh, queer community has kind of it's like an we're we're putting a label on this this behavioral trend that we've observed, and it's it's kind of a joke, right? I'm not trying to call out specific people. I'm not if if you are soft and emotional, sensitive, cool, whatever, do do whatever you want. I'm fine. Just don't. Don't use these things as a shield to justify forcing your will onto other people. It's like, cool to not. It's totally fine to like not like pub people being publicly affectionate or like doing public. Like it's perfectly fine to be uncomfortable with that. It's perfectly like that doesn't mean anything yeah. bad. It doesn't mean you're a prude. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. But like, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to be public with that at a public event celebrating the fact that it's they are now less oppressed for doing that thing like yeah or, or a beach or mardi gras and like make sure you're cognizant if you're engaging in any kind of like socially normalized ideas of like straight stuff is inherently less sexual than gay stuff right i always i mean i advocate people being able to like get into their own head and figure out why they think certain things like this. It's, it's this like idea of uh, meta thought trying to, trying to think about why you think about things. Um, so if you, if you're, if you're more uncomfortable with two men kissing than you are with what, than one man and a woman kissing, you should think about that. You should be like, even, even as like, even as a trans non-binary lesbian, if you, if you, if, you, if you're more, com- if you're more uncomfortable looking at two men kiss, you should think about why, why, what social conditioning has caused this to happen. Because that's something that people have been pushing for a long time, is that, yeah, gay stuff is, like, more adult or more mature than queer stuff. And I think that's a big part of, of, of these types of things being at Pride, is, like, pushing back on that idea. Um, so, like, I think, and the reason why we, we see more of these now is, like, there are these baby tender queers who grew up in a world where you were less likely to get fucking assaulted for being gay while also growing up on the internet in the age of Tumblr and, and Instagram, right? These kids were able to construct their own comfortable, safe bubbled versions of reality online, only being exposed to what they want, when they want, right? They get, they, they get to only view it things that they find aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and th- the pandemic certainly heightened this, right? With people being forced to solely exist in their self-catered online worlds. So now with the outside world opening up, some of these soft baby tender queers are going through puberty and are dealing with their quote unquote uncomfy feelings. Um, and the added notion of being exposed to things that you have specifically not sought out, like the, 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 that causes them to be uncomfortable, right? If, if you're, if you're, if you're a femi person who's just attracted to, uh, to other femi people, having to, having to look at dudes be affectionate may not be your cup of tea, but, and you may not like enjoy it, but that's like, it's just as queer as you are, so it, you shouldn't. You can't prioritize your queerness over somebody else's. Um, 
it's 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 like there's this collection of baby gays that gets uncomfortable being reminded that people, like especially people whom they are not personally attracted to, uh, have sex. It's like if they're reminded that this happens and they don't like it, um, it's like it, it feels like they have this sort of like anxiety just about about just looking at something that they perceive as sexual in nature, right? And for this, for, for them, this includes other but differently queer people wearing leather or being semi-nude like dudes being shirtless or women being shirtless for like i think that that's a whole other double standard that should be uh pushed back upon um but like again it's pride's not any more naked than people at the beach uh so you're not it's not actually it they're very selective in the types of things that they that they will they, that, that they will focus on and it, it plays into this notion that's used by all like anti-gay legislation that gayness is inherently more sexual than being straight right it's 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 more sexual it's more mature it's more adult uh because for a long time uh being gay was exclusively seen as like a hypersexual deviant act um and now especially among gen z baby queers uh being queer is now less tied to specifically the act of sex right queerness is much more of an like an overarching personal identity now especially as like as it intersects with like gender and stuff right you know whether that be non-binary other stuff, other stuff like pansexual bisexual what have you but to kind of circle back to the kink of pride stuff people want us dead for being queer uh it doesn't fucking matter if someone's parading around in a collar if you're uncomfortable you should maybe learn to fight actually fight back against people who actually want to kill you like pride was a riot you should you should sort out your uncomfy feelings elsewhere or direct your or direct your uncomfy feelings at the people attacking us. So maybe maybe you don't prop up kink at pride discourse when uh, accusations of queer people being all groomers is at, is at an all time high, and there's fascists organizing to like shoot us at pride marches. So maybe consider that before you do discourse on Twitter.com. I'm going to do one little quote and then we will have an ad break. Uh, I'm just going to end this section with a quote from uh, them.com again. Quote. Kinks, sex, and protest are all inherent parts of pride. One of the core tenets of pride is liberation and working against cultural shaming. Calling to, quote, not perform your kinks and fetishes at pride because some minors are there and kink can, quote, sexualize the event, unquote, uh, implies that celebrating sexuality and kink is openly bad. And normalizing these things should be a goal of pride. BDSM, subversive sexuality, and leather culture have enjoyed a long history within the LGBTQ rights movement, and such public displays of sexuality are driven by much more than libido or countercultural impulses. They're an inherent expression of queer culture and queer sexuality, and as such, deserve a place at pride as much as anything else. Okay, and now it's time to actually get into what the title of these episodes is about. Uh, the Operation Pridefall stuff. We're gonna talk about this thing that sucks. Um, so whether you're looking at the conservative groomer discourse or the tender queer kink at pride discourse, you'll see a lot of the same logic as well as a lot of the same photos. We've, we've talked a lot about memes on the show and I, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get into like the power of memes very much right now. Uh, but su suffice to say that, um, like a picture can stick in your head a lot easier than a bunch of words can. Um, and throughout the groomer and kink at pride shit, there are a few select photos that people use to demonstrate their opinions on how gay people are a threat to children. Um, either, either they're just pictures of adults in like kink-associated garb, usually like full latex bodysuits or pup masks, um, 
or uh and there's these like specifically like uh, uh there's these two specific pictures of kids just like standing next to adults who are wearing pup masks that get used a lot there's also there's also a lot of pictures of like drag queen story time and whenever whenever i see any of these very specific pictures i flash back to when i first came across the original operation pridefall 4chan thread back in 2020 because these are actually all of all of the exact same pictures um so Operation Pridefall was a cyber harassment campaign started on 4chan targeting the degeneracy of the LGBTQ community by attempting to sway public opinion against queer people by linking being gay to grooming and pedophilia. So <laughs> checking back in in 2022, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> has, has things happened. So initially organized on 4chan, Discord, and Telegram right before Pride Month, the campaign set out targets and methods to flood the social media platforms of gay venues, Pride sponsors, and LGBTQ people or supporters with spam, anti-gay memes, and uh, media, usually photos, intended to imply a link between being openly queer and the grooming of children, uh, and operating online under the banner of Operation Pridefall. The, the campaign started on May 10th, 2020, when an anonymous 4chan poster uh, posted a thread on poll outlining Operation Pridefall, uh, which was uh, pitching it as a crowdsourced campaign aimed at damaging the LGBTQ community during the month of June of, in 2020. The plan centered around, quote-unquote, red-pilling users in the comments sections of companies that support L LGBTQ causes on social media. Uh, the, the, the 4chan post read, quote, Every June, hundreds of massive corporations band together to smother social media in posts in flavor of Pride Month, a code word for the degeneracy that is LGBT activism. Many of these accounts are rather small and get very little engagement, yet they continue to post without backlash. Beginning on June 1st, the goal of Operation Pridefall is to get on Twitter, Instagram, etc., and drop a shit ton of disturbing red pills on homosexuality on the comments of the lesser-known pages. The bigger pages are okay targets, but posts tend to get unnoticed in the sea of other comments. Commenting on smaller pages, ones with less than 100 likes and so, means anyone who views it will see the posts and companies will reconsider their pro-pride posts afterwards." Unquote. So, if you scroll through the archived uh, initial like Pridefall thread, you'll see a crowdsourced collection of pictures that they intend to flood the internet with uh, under, like, in the comments section of posts discussing pride or discussing LGBTQ activism or whatever. Um, so in this, in this, like, crowdsourced collection of photos, we see a lot of drag queen story time stuff, but many of these pictures and memes are now the same ones used both in the recent groomer thing and in the past two years of kink at pride discourse. It's, it's the exact, it's the exact same photos. Um, it's, it's, there's like, there's, there's hundreds of them. There's hundreds of, of photos of like, you know, people in pup masks, whatever, like waving, waving pride flags. It's, it's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of them and the specific ones get used for so much of the groomer shit. Uh, and it, they really started to gain much more visibility during 2020 after the Operation Pridefall thing got launched. The Operation Pridefall 4chan thread also instructed users on how to set up uh, fake phone numbers to make burner accounts to to comment on these on these social media pages. Um, there's an another really interesting part that the Operation Pridefall planning stuff uh, detailed was uh, on on uh, on Discord on the Operation Pridefall uh, servers and channels. 
the users were planning to repurpose cringy TikTok videos while relabeling them with anti-LGBTQ captions and hashtags. Uh, here's a here's a quote from their from their from their planning planning Discord. An additional idea: we can red pull Zoomers on TikTok and literally build a fucking puppet army to fuck the shit out of millennials. We should expand this operation to as many social media outlets as possible in order to maximize effort. Let's operate like this on TikTok. Convince any Gen Z sibling or relatives to do some kind of shitty jester charade slash whore dance, and then add LGBTQ critical captions on top of it and repost it under trending hashtags. So you see elements of this exact strategy mirrored one year later in libs of TikTok by getting videos of people being, I don't know, kids and like kind of cringy because kids are kind of cringy, but videos of kids on TikTok and mischaracterizing, you know, TikTok videos and adding, adding LGBTQ talking points on top of them uh, to sway the public opinion of queer people. It's the, it's the exact same strategy. A similar idea was also implemented alongside setting up fake dating app profiles to not only spread their anti-gay kind of grooming memes, but also to farm viral content by catfishing gay people and getting them to, like, be in embarrassing interactions. Uh, Another quote, uh, on Tinder, Bumble, and Grindr, set up fake profiles with legit convincing images and descriptions that criticize LGBT. So it's this, it's a trying to catfish queer people and like then I guess spam them with pictures of these like grooming memes um, and see what their reaction is, then post it, right? It's so the, the, the whole Operation Pride Fall strategy might appear pretty simple, right? It's like basically glorified shitposting, setting up a bunch of fake sock puppet accounts and demonizing queer people in the comment section of small corporations and influencers. But there definitely is a lot more to it than that, right? There was there was this element of like planned escalation, starting off first as like appearing as reasonable commenters, right? Acting in very good faith, just as somebody concerned by kids being exposed to to sexual materials, whether that be you know people in drag at a library reading books or people at a pride parade, right? So in, in, instead of immediately going on like full one hundred percent gay bashing, uh saying that we should, you know, kill all deviant trans people, uh, which a lot of conservative commentators just say now, like Elijah Schaefer, who just posts memes about ki- wanting to kill trans kids. Um, yep. These 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 bored fascists on 4chan tried to coordinate a slow, more insidious approach, which they would hope would just gradually turn the tide of public opinion against queer people. Here's a, here's a snippet from one of the Pridefall organizing chats. Quote, Keep it normie, palatable, and friendly. This means no Nazi or Hitler shit. The goal is to make them question whether what they're supporting is really the right thing. So as as, as Pride Month progressed, the 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 Pridefall participants coordinated on 4chan, Discord, and Telegram to slowly increase the frequency and intensity of the campaign. Uh, another quote from the organizing chat. Quote. Think about it as waves. Day one is simply questioning homosexuality, and then as the day goes on, it will get worse and worse until the end of Pride Month. So, uh, in, in terms of physical things they actually had, uh, I believe Operation Pride Fall resulted in a few gay events getting shut down. There was like this uh, event at I think it was it was like a like a at a queer nightclub in the UK that, that got shut down. There was a few other like like obvious like like material. Uh, uh, results that, that they had by doing this harassment campaign against venues and corporations, but I think they're just they were more successful in 
first of all, spreading specific mimetic images that are now commonly used in the grooming stuff and in the kink of pride stuff, some, some of which these images were not really used in discourse before, but now are commonplace. I think that that's really where more of this idea succeeded. So over the course of the month, they, they wanted to get more regular people to start associating members of the LGBTQ community with pedophilia. And in, in, in order to do that, the, the way they see it is by just gradually shifting this discussion. Uh, and then as public opinion uh, alters, they hope that brands will distance themselves from the LGBTQ community and stop doing more, more pride shit. Um, right. It's so like that was that was a, a, another big part of what their intention was. And they may not have done all that stuff immediately, like they may not may not have succeeded in that, but they definitely did succeed in the prevalence of the images that they were trying to intentionally spread, because that absolutely has happened. Do you know who else loves uh, implanting ideas into your brain? That's 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 right. The the products and services that sponsor this podcast. Woo, go go buy go buy their product or get a job <laughs> at one of the <laughs> you know you know what i'm talking about anyway here's here's the ads and we are we are back wasn't wasn't it fun reading about operation pridefall didn't that just bring bring joy to your ears i'm so happy me it's too joy to so um, many parts of me yeah so as we mentioned a, a big part of their attempts to sway public opinion it's by spamming photos and memes that attempt to showcase just how dangerous gay people are to children, whether that be drag queens doing story time at a library, photos of, of gay people doing quote-unquote kink at pride. Um, you know, basically, basically, they're trying to say, how could any reasonable person or corporation support pride? It's essentially a grooming parade, right? That, that's, the, that's the thing that they were trying to implant. And one of the things that Operation Pride felt was successful in was popularizing a few of these kink at pride photos, many of which were then subsequently used last year during kink at pride discourse um, and used this year as well, uh, most, mostly by some, some like anti-sex people on the left um, and some of these young tender queers. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the same photos are used in grooming stuff and in pride fall stuff and, and kink at pride stuff. Because it's the same base psychology at play, right? The, the idea that sexuality in a queer sense is dangerous and way more deviant than sexuality in a heterosexual context, right? Like straight people kissing is rated G, gay, gay people kissing is rated PG or PG-13. Uh, it's, it's, it's that idea, but accelerate it. Uh, another correlation between the openly homophobic groomer talking points and like the tender queer stuff is is this is this idea that I'm only comfortable seeing expressions of sexuality that I can relate to or also find attractive? And another interesting thing about a, a lot of these photos is that a lot of these photos that they use aren't actually photos of pride. A, yeah. a lot of a lot of the photos <laughs> that they use are actually from the Folsom Street Fair, which is like a kink oh festival boy. that takes yes, place in is. San Francisco every year. <laughs> um, and it is. <laughs> Hard to exaggerate how horny the Folsom Street Fair is. <laughs> so it's very horny, but also obviously because gay people have sex, gay people also exist at the Folsom Street Fair. Um, they may even uh, wave a pride flag. Shocking. Um, so a lot of these photos that 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 they use in the grooming stuff and in the kink at pride stuff are actually from the Folsom Street Fair. They're not actually photos of pride parades. Um, so <laughs> it's. Uh, and it's it's and of course anyone who's been to Pride would kind of know that because Pride is not like the Folsom Street Fair. 
<laughs> they are very different events. And that's another good indicator of how a lot of these people who prop up this discourse online have never been to Pride either because they're sharing photos at the Folsom Street Fair and saying it's Pride. Um, obviously, lots of these Nazis on 4chan have never been to the Folsom Street Fair or Pride, uh, but they they also share these same photos because, hey, it's, it's people who look gay doing sexual things in public. That means it's at Pride and it's a danger to children, even though a lot of them are actually at the Folsom Street Fair. Um, so if then if if you're a queer person and you're reposting these Folsom Street Fair pictures and claiming to be from and claiming that they're from a Pride parade uh, to bash like kink at Pride stuff, uh, reconsider that because you're basically just doing the work that neo Nazis want to do. Uh, just you're just doing it on your own time, right? Like it's you're repurposing the exact same photos that they were that they were putting out there within this context. And just not even not even knowing where these where these where these pictures are from, um, so stop stop that. <laughs> Consider not uh, if if you have to like if if you're gonna go to all of this work to denounce queer people for like existing, maybe you should consider why you're doing that. Because wow, that that sucks. Because calling the Folsom Street Fair a pride parade and then demonizing it because. And then, and then demonizing pride because there's people who act like pretty kinky is not not great because that's not what anything is happening. You're, none of none, none of that is accurate. So that's it's really frustrating to look at to look at all of all of the ways these things these things combine because you get you get tender queers sharing Folsom Street Fair pictures, you get conservative politicians sharing them all calling them pride stuff. So again, like a lot of the stuff you see there isn't even like a lot of them isn't like a lot of the pictures don't even have like full nudity. Um, so that's not necessarily like it's not, it's not even super abhorrent, but it's, you're conflating these, these things in a really disingenuous way. And you're just repeating the exact same things that Nazis have been trying to get you to repeat for years. And you should consider why that happens. So all of the grooming stuff obviously has gotten has gotten worse in the in the past few months. Uh definitely de definitely ballooned around the around the don't say gay bill. And this this got tied into a whole bunch of stuff happening in Florida with the Disney Corporation and a lot of the grooming stuff got tied to conservatives attacking Disney now um and calling Disney a grooming organization. Uh we've had we've had far right candidates show up in front of in front of Disney World to do protests. We've had Nazis show up in front of Disney World to do protests. We've seen a lot of mega people show up at Disney World to do protests. Um all against Disney's grooming of children by including anything not straight in any of their materials, which is already like so little. Um, yeah, which is also like, just extremely funny of like imagining you, you bring Walt Disney Walt back Disney. to the bed and he's yes. like, what is it? <laughs> Come on, man. Like, guys, we're all on the same side here. <laughs> yeah. And like, I don't know, like, do you, I don't know if I really actually think that like, do do all these, all these people actually think that millions of teachers, Democrats, corporate entertainment creators are all complicit in a, in a long-term planning of like to to sexually groom minors S some some might believe that right that that kind of that kind of overlaps with some QAnon stuff and the paranoia around like child trafficking but i think 
others understand that they're kind of being hyperbolic and they're being inflammatory to get people angry and to get people like very very like active in their in their hatred of gay people right they needs to old school homophobia kind of became a bad look they need to find a new way to rebrand it and now it's with this groomer stuff and like gay teachers trans teachers right gender identity stuff right a lot of it is now wrapped up in like trans issues um but I, I, I want to read this quote by a, a, a right-wing writer named Rod Dreher. Oh, uh, it, it, was, God, it, was, Rod Dreher. it was cited in The Atlantic. <gasps> and I think it's actually a really good look uh. at how the people who are smart on the right, um, how that they are intentionally using this grooming label. Quote, about the term groomers, it's usually used to describe pedophiles who are preparing innocent kids for sexual exploitation. I think it is coming to have a somewhat broader meaning. An adult who wants to separate children from a normative sexual and gender identity to inspire confusion in them and to turn them against their parents and all the normative traditions and institutions in society. It may not be specifically to groom them for sexual activity, but it is certainly to groom them to take them on a sexual slash gender identity at odds with the norm. Which really, God, I think I that that quote, that, yeah. that quote really showcases what's going on in their brains there. Yeah, well, and, and this is something I think like Dreher, like Rob Dreher in particular, doing this I think is is a really bad sign because like, for people who don't know who Rob Dreher is, he's like a weirdo Catholic guy. Um, he's been like a right wing like Catholic. Uh, I think he's a, a right wing Catholic sort of columnist for a long time, and like. You know, if you go back to like t- 2017, his big thing was this whole was this thing called the Benedict Option, which was basically like. Okay, so like secular societies become corrupted. Uh, like Christians should just pull out of it, right, and go live in their own communities. That could be sort of like, like you know, we we like we 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 we've lo- we've lost this world. We have to like create a new world in which we can live our own sort of like Christian truth or whatever. And he 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 was in this long running kind of like battle with a a, a sort of like. I guess like op- openly phalangist, kind of like openly fascists. I mean, not quite openly fascist, but like pe- people people who are reading uh like what's his name uh people who are reading Schmidt and like the Nazi lawyers who were like okay, well we in, in, you know in, in, instead of in, in, as opposed to this thing of like we're Catholics, we're going to pull back from the world. Uh, their thing was we're going to use we're we're going to use like the state to enforce Christian doctrine, and Dreher had sort of like fought that. And the fact that Dreher is now just full on in this grooming shit, right? That is really bad. Yep. And and looking again, you know, if if, if you want to go back into sort of history, right? Like this is this is the kind of flip that happened that brought the evangelicals into the political scene, right? Like you have this flip from like people being like, "Well, the rapture is coming, and society is impure, so we're not going to become be politically engaged." To, oh, hey, look, we can use the state to just like destroy our political enemies and create the kingdom of heaven on earth. And yeah, this is. <laughs> This is not good. This is oh. yeah, but I think specifically that quote's a really good insight to yeah, how yeah, the smart conservatives who like yeah. know what they're doing, like they know it's not actual grooming, but it's it, the, if they can if they can use that word within the context of being like it's about getting it's about getting kids to adopt a non-normative sexual mm. identity. It's again, it's like non-normative, right? It's, it's it's confusion in them, turning them against the institutions in society, right? All of all of these things that is that is mirrored across 
lots of the grimmer discourse, the kink and pride discourse, all this kind of stuff. It's 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 the same. It's the same thing. It's like a non-normative sexuality is more sexual than a normative sexuality. It's this whole idea, man, and it's not great because it's not going to stop with kids either. Uh, it's not going to. Uh, we we I talk with I've talked with this a lot. How how once they ban you know, trans healthcare for minors, they're going to bump it up to age 25, then they're going to bump it up to no one has it at all. Yep. And I have, I got, I got an update on that front. Um, so uh, first of all, for recent legislation, there's the um, Alabama felony healthcare ban for trans youth, which forcibly detransitions teens across the state. Um, that, 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 that just got enacted. And in Missouri, there's a similar bill in the works, officially titled the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act. Um, and it applies to, individual, to individuals younger than 18 years old, um, and it would it would inhibit Missouri uh, uh, physicians and healthcare providers to, and prevent them from providing gender affirming uh, healthcare to patients. And it turns out Missouri lawmakers a few weeks ago were debating the bill seeking to restrict access to gender affirming care for minors, and. <sighs> And they also suggested that access to medical interventions like hormones be withheld from transgender and non-binary individuals until at least their 25th birthday. Yep. During public hearing Yay. a few weeks ago in Missouri's for House Bill 2649, Lori Haynes, a psychologist, testified that she believes young adults under the age of 25 are unable to fully comprehend the dramatic and drastic and irreparable changes their body will go under if they receive gender-affirming medical treatments like puberty blockers <sighs> or hormone therapies. Uh, Hayes also said that she supported uh, getting conversion therapy for trans kids. Yeah, I'll bet she thinks that 18-year-olds should be able to buy AR-15s, though. Join the military. Oh. Join the military. Become a cop. Become cops. So it's already happening. Uh, we already have lawmakers and we have psychologists being brought in to testify that this is the case. People, they want This is going to be the next thing. They, they want this to happen. Um, now, I'm just, just going to say, obviously, uh, a re recent study published in the Journal of America, in the in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found that receiving gender-affirming care, including puberty blockers and hormones between the ages of 13 and 20, was associated with 60% lower odds of moderate or severe depression and 73% lower are odds of suicidality. Uh, another study published late last year by the Trevor Project found that among transgender and non-binary minors. Hormone therapy was associated with nearly 40% lower odds of recent depression or a suicide attempt over the last year, and a lot of the effects of puberty blockers and even hormonal replacement therapy actually are reversible and are not damaging. Um, so, I mean, but we we all know that. Uh, there's that horrible uh, uh, Matt Walsh trans documentary coming out soon. Oh, God. Yeah, um, yeah that, yeah. And yeah. He, he definitely, I know in the trailer, he, he says that uh, one of the drugs used to give puberty blockers to minors is also used as a chemical castration for sexual assault uh, uh, perpetrators, uh, which is kind of true, but it's castration in the sense that you need to take the drug always for it to work. It yeah, is a it's like it, it's a hormone blocker. It stops look, testosterone dude, like, from from being produced. Fucking... If you go off of it, it's gonna happen again. It's not a permanent castration. It's gonna suppress testosterone. Y you know so, what? A, a, a popular medication for people with heart problems is also it, a highly yes. explosive compound. Oh no! Yeah, it turns well, I mean, out it, things yeah, can like, be used in different ways. Yeah, like like one one hundred percent of cancer victims are found with dihydrogen monoxide in their system. 
Like so, but yeah. Anyway, this, this, we're this gonna see like, a lot of we're gonna see a lot of lies about HRT coming up soon because this Matt Walsh documentary is gonna be stupid. But again, he he doesn't understand the science. Obviously, he's he's a propagandist. Um, but the the last thing I want to talk about here is what's gonna be happening in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Um, so taking taking their cue from the uh the 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 I'm I'm gonna be I'm quoting I'm gonna quote an article here by uh. Di- by daily costs uh they did a really a really really good write-up uh david uh newert wrote it um, uh oh, da- david david newert for the record like the thing that uh he has been this beat that that we're in like writing about these people david's been doing it for like 30 years he's he's, he's, he's amazing he's he's incredible yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna quote from him here this is the last thing we'll we'll, we'll close with um Taking a cue from the incoming tide of far-right fear-mongering about grooming and an LGBTQ agenda in schools and libraries, a group of Idaho biker militiamen are planning to show up to confront people celebrating Pride at an event in downtown Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, in a a public park next month. Uh, Two men from the leadership of Panhandle Patriots, a militia-oriented bikers club based in northern Idaho, Justin Allen, the group's vice president, and Jeff White, its sergeant-at-arms, told a recent gathering at a church hosted by Republican State House member Heather Scott that they plan to have a gun-driven event next month in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, the same day as the city's Pride celebration at a park less than a mile mm. away, and they planned a confrontation. Um, I'm going to play a clip of them announcing this. Uh, and yeah, give it a listen. These parades are government-funded. Many of you aren't aware right now in Coeur d'Alene, on the 10th of June, there is Family Day. And in Family Day, they are promoting family values, activities, and everything. The very following day, they are having Gay Pride Day. In the very same park, the very next day, where they will be allowed to parade through all of Coeur d'Alene, drag queen dancers, education hour, making all this material available for all the kids in a park that is designed for kids. We are having an event the very same day. That very same day, we actually intend to go head to head with these people. A line must be drawn in the sand. Good people need to stand up. As she was talking about the repercussions, we say, damn the repercussions. Stand up, take it to the head, go to the fight. If you can, possibly, we know a lot of you are in Bonner. We live in Bonner County. We are fighting in multiple counties. We are asking for all of you to come stand with us. Our event is advertised as Gundalane because it's an anniversary of when we stood to protect our community. We're standing again to protect our community. We shifted our date to be available to go head to head with these people. They are trying to take your children. This fight is not just paper. It's not just words. It's not just politicians. They have to see people standing in their face saying no more. So, wow, that sucked uh, and is entirely uh, entirely expected. Um, so the, the, the meeting at this, at this uh, church read by a Republican uh, House member was titled The Game Plan to Remove Inappropriate Materials in Our Schools and Libraries. Uh, it, was, it was held at a uh, Calvary mm-hmm. Chapel 
in a small town north of Sandpoint, Idaho. Uh, Scott has a long history of associations and identifications with the far-right patriot movement, specifically in, in Idaho. And it, it was bad. Um, Heather Scott, the Republican State House member, um, about an hour into the night, uh, uh, Scott invited the two militia dudes up to the podium to speak, and they said that. So, yeah, it's uh, in in a flyer posted by the Panhandle Patriots advertising their planned confrontation at at at, at Pride. Uh, at, at a flyer that they made shows shows a drag queen reading at a public library and urges people to join in and standing up against the indoctrination and grooming of our children. And if you don't protect children, you are part of the problem. So, yeah, they're planning to take a whole bunch of guns the same day as a pride parade, and we'll see what happens. Um, I love <sighs> that That's that we're just going to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and I, Jen, very incredibly deeply hope we're not reporting on the result of that, because... Yep. Yeah. So anyway, before you share King at Pride discourse, think this is what happens. <laughs> this is what happens when you engage this in, in this type of rhetoric that queer sexuality is inherently more dangerous to kids. Because anyway. I'm sad now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't really an upper of, of an episode. Um you don't say. <laughs> but, but it's it is important to talk about. Um yes. so if you're going to Pride this year. Please be careful, because there's a lot of a lot of worsening attacks on queer people. Bring a knife back. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to do this. But this but is the world we live bring in. Bring a knife back. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, that does it for us today. It it could happen here. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it doesn't happen here. Um, but it could. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to, to Make It Happen Here, a podcast about something that did happen that sucked enormously. Um, I'm Christopher Wong. I'm, I'm, I'm the host. Also with me is Garrison and Sophie. Hello. We just, Good morning. Just really starting off positive there. Uh, it's... <laughs> look. <laughs> it's it's this, this episode, the next episode... I mean, I guess this episode kind of ends on a high note, but... That's great to hear. I'm so happy. I totally yeah. believe you. <laughs> I, it kind of does. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, Shireen is also here. Hello. Hi. Sorry, my fault. Keep going. No worries. <laughs> so th- this is this is the the 33rd anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, tomorrow's episode, I think, will actually be going out on, I guess, the day that it started. Kind of, it starts like the night of like June 3rd. Um. And okay, I'm I'm curious what you two's like. I don't know, like received like cultural memory of Tiananmen is because I don't know. I think I got a kind of weird one, like being from a Chinese family. But as a white Canadian, I have zero amount of my uh, <laughs> knowledge about the Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square massacre, nor really about Tiananmen. Uh, it just yeah, that is something I never, never have really learned about. Yeah, I, I know that it happened in 1989. That's Ameri- that's the American uh, uh, <laughs> lesson we got on the history of that massacre, is that it happened in 1989. Really mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, today and tomorrow we're going we're gonna to go... Well, we're, we're going to talk, I think, less about what happened there specifically and more about the sort of broader history that's in but i guess let's start out so in some sense there, there's there's really three Tiananmen's. um there's there's the student protest that's inside Tiananmen square itself there's this part of beijing like around the squares like a bunch of blocks are taken over by workers and then there's a bunch of protests in other cities and uh unfortunately we're not gonna be talking about the protests in the other cities because like Basically, nothing is known about them other than that, like, they happened, but the people who would know aren't talking. So, for some, somewhat obvious reasons. Um, yeah, and the students themselves, I, I think, like, the, the, the normal version of Tiananmen is, is like, like these, there's these students and they're, like, pro-democracy protesters, right? But they're way weirder than that. There's there's like this weird ideological grab bag thing going on. Um, they're they're basically what they're pissed off about is that 
this thing is called the reform and opening like isn't going fast enough and we should talk about what that sort of is so reform and opening is like it's this period in china in sort of the 80s and some of the 90s um and on the one hand you have these sort of steps to like ease restrictions on speech and like rehabilitate intellectuals and like allow for a broader public discourse but the other half of it is that like they're they're bringing they're basically they're bringing markets back to china right and this this is a shit show in a lot of ways if you want to hear about like the ccp reinventing debt peonage in about five years um go listen to my bastards episode the poison milk scandal it's a it's a trip but on the other hand you have you know so, so you have kind of like opening up right you you have just more discourse you're they're not persecuting intellectuals again um, sort of they're, they're 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 de-persecuting the intellectuals that they had persecuted um but on the other hand you get this absolutely draconian sort of like set of crackdowns in the social sphere you have the one child policy you have this like really powerful tightening of one man rule in the factory and you have the sort of the, the destruction of these form we'll, we'll get into this more later but like the the sort of limited decision making capacity that workers had had in the factories um just is sort of dismantled and so you see these sort of gaps beginning to form here right like on the one hand you have these students who want market reforms to go faster they want more freedom of speech they like kind of want democracy but like mostly what they want is to be in charge of the party so they can crush the sort of like bureaucracy they see as holding market reforms back. And it, it's worth noting that like a lot of these students are involved in what becomes known as neo authoritarianism, which is the sort of ideology that holds that like the strong central party should take full control of society and destroy the factions and the bureaucracy. And so, you know, and then that, that's how you can lead development. And this stuff, like that stuff, like neo authoritarianism survives the protest and goes on to become like a, a pretty major faction in the ccp itself in the 90s and 2000s and you know this is this is where things just get weird right um the the student movement itself is very hierarchical and it gets to the point where like but by by, by the end of the student movement they're these the, the student leaders are like kidnapping each other over like who has control of the microphones and like the stages in the square it is it is extremely bizarre and, and you know in in terms of like the protests actually like inf- the, the, what the, what the protests are trying to do is they're trying to like influence this factional fight inside the CCP over like the speed at which reforms are going to go and this like, it doesn't work it's like stunningly ineffectual the, the guy they're trying to defend like winds up getting ousted and put under house arrest for the rest of his life so okay so th- those are the student protesters but. The, the the part and that, that the student protesters are the part of this that like everyone knows partly because some of those people escaped to Hong Kong and you know they're, they're very influential in sort of shaping the memory there but there's also the workers that I mentioned earlier and the students basically like hate the workers um for 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 most of the time this protest is going on and this is I mean, this is months right they they literally will they will not let any of the workers go into the in, into Tiananmen Square. Like they they have they have this whole system and like in order to get into like in- increasing like like closer to the center of the square you have to be a student and then if to get to the center of the square you have to be like a, a member of the leadership it's very weird and you know and, and like one of the things the workers are trying to do is they want to carry out a general strike and the students are like no absolutely not do not do a general strike because largely is because okay so if, if these people start doing a general strike like that's not something that's not under our control and. You know, okay, so th- this raises the question, like, if the relationships between the students who are at Tiananmen and the workers at Tiananmen are this bad, like, why are the workers even there? 
Um, and, and there's a few answers to this question. The, the sort of the simplest and most immediate one is that like the workers are initially they come out because they're pissed. They they see how badly like the 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 cops and sort of like the party is is treating the students in the square. And so they get mad, but but there, but there's there's other stuff going on too. The, the late eighties is the late eighties in China is sort of a mess economically. There, there's rampant inflation, and the, the the sort of rapid increase in prices is a threat to you know the sort of like cheap supply of grain, which is like the the, the sort of main subsidy that if you're an urban worker that you get. And meanwhile, you know you have marketization happening. So at the same time that every, the prices are increasing for everyone, and they can't get access to stuff that they need. Uh, you have just like CCP princelings like racing down the street in imported sports cars, and like these are like the only these are like the only cars, right? Like people people, I don't know, like like people are starting to get bicycles in mass, sort of in this period. But then you know it's like, hey, here's here's this like party boss guy who has a sports car. They're like spending year salaries, like gambling at racetracks, and people just get pissed off. So they 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 start organizing, and I'm I'm gonna read from. A section of a piece by Johan Zhang about what, what they were doing. Um, During the struggle to obstruct the military, workers started to realize the power of their spontaneous organization in action. This was self-liberation on an unprecedented level. A huge wave of self-organization ensued. The Beijing Workers' Autonomous Federation's membership grew exponentially, and other workers' organizations, both within and across workplaces, mushroomed. The development of organizations led to a radicalization of action. Workers started organizing self-armed quasi-militias, such as picket corps and dare-to-die brigades, to monitor and broadcast the military's whereabouts. These quasi-militias were also responsible for maintaining public order, so as not to provide any pretext for military intervention. In a sense, Beijing became a city self-managed by workers. It was reminiscent of Petrograd's self-armed workers organized in the Soviets in the months between Russia's February and October revolutions. At the same time, Beijing workers built many more barricades and fortifications on the street. In many factories, they organized strikes and slowdowns. A possible general strike was put on the table as well. Many workers started to build connections between factories to prepare for a general strike. And yeah, and like this is the part of it that like people don't talk about because it wasn't in the square. And I mean, the other part, the, the other faction, like factor that's going on here is that like, so the press corps is like sitting in the square. And th- this is why Tiananmen is this, this sort of like this is massive spectacle, right? Because all of this, everything that's happening here inside the square is happening like in front of the entire Western press corps. And like people are like, you know, like people are just like pointing cameras at their window, right? And, you know, but on the other hand, the, 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 the people outside of the square, like the workers outside of the square are, the workers are getting more organized. And this is like, this is absolutely unacceptable to the party. And so, yeah, on, on on the night of June third, the army just starts killing them. Um, they, they there there had been a couple of attempts earlier to clear to 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 clear the sort of fortifications, and it hadn't really worked. But this time, like they 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 they're they're able to bring in military units that aren't from Beijing or like aren't from around the area, and they kill an enormous number of people. Um, yeah, and and I think it, it's I think it's important to note that like. Both in terms of the, of the killings that happened immediately, and the political persecution like after that, it's it's mostly the workers bearing this, especially in the initial massacre. Most of the killing happens as the army's like fighting its way into the square, and you know, I mean, they kill people in the square too. But 
you know, and eventually they, they, they get into the square and this is where you get like tank man and like the, the sort of the famous accounts of the massacre. But like by that point, it's basically over. Right. Because what, one of the other things that's happened is that at, over the course of this protest, a lot of the students have left because they sort of, they sort of gave up after the like factional conflict, like stopped. But so so most of the people like who are there are, 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 on, are on the outs are like other workers on the outside of the square trying to defend it. And when those people get killed and the, ar- the army gets in the middle of the square, it's, it's the whole thing's already over. And, you know, the, the, these protests get crushed. And, you know, b- b- like b- before the last bullet has been fired, everyone, everyone left standing is trying to create their own narratives. But what just happened, um, the, the most common one is that Tiananmen is this like clash between democracy and authoritarianism. And like, okay, to, 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 to some extent, that's not wrong. Although, I mean, you know, we've already mentioned that there are a lot of neo-authoritarian students there. Uh, but like, you know, okay, th- this is, this is kind of a fair interpretation of what's going on. Like there's a lot of other pro-democracy movements in this period, like in, in the region, most famously there's Taiwan and South Korea. Um, but the the actual question of what's happening here is 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 really a question of of what kind of democracy there's you know that that these people are fighting for the the students at Tiananmen you know to to the extent that their democratic principles are sincere and not a cover for a sort of like deeply authoritarian version of liberalism that's you know demanded by like a sort of new class of intellectuals to oversee market reform so to the extent that they like they actually believe in this right they they believe in a very narrow conception of political democracy, and you know th- this this democracy, this sort of political democracy, operates at the level of the state, right? It's based on free citizens who are equal before the law, participating in elections to choose representatives who like pass laws, and you know oversee and manage the state bureaucracy. But you know th- th- this model of political democracy, which is you know this is the one that we live under, right? It 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 relegates the workplace to a a. a a separate economic sphere into which democracy d- doesn't extend. The capitalist firm or its state-owned equivalent remains the absolute dictatorship of capitalists and managerial flunkies. And even even the sort of progressive wings of the pro-democracy movement in like Taiwan and South Korea like maintain this private this private dictatorship. You know, if 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 you're a worker in one of these states, right, you get rights. You get, you know, you get the ability to form unions, you get access to the welfare state, you get, you get these sort of limited protections from the worst, like, physical and psychological abuses that your bosses can inflict. But no, no matter how progressive the pro-democracy movements actually are, the legitimate, the, the, Jesus, sorry, the legitimacy of the dictatorship of the bosses was, was not up for dispute, in, you know, to, 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 to these sort of pro-democracy movements, right? Pro, like, democracy means a democratic state and not a democratic workplace. And this is this is the huge divide between what's happening at Tiananmen and what's happening like everywhere else in the world. The the workers at Tiananmen are the only people left in this entire sort of like run of pro democracy movements that disagree. They they are standing against not only that like every they're standing not only against their own government, against a lot of the the students who are who are also like in, at these protests. They are standing against literally the entire tide of history itself by, 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 you know, by, by applying the principles of the pro-democracy movement to like their own concerns, right? Which is skyrocketing inflation, mounting debts, like rampant corruption to government officials, like skyrocketing and spiraling inequality and petty bureaucratic oppression. Beijing's working class had reinvented a 
old and now like largely forgotten tradition of democracy in the factory that I'm I'm going to I'm calling it democratic worker self-management because there, there's no good name for it and they're all kind of clunky. Fair. I mean, this is based on who these people were at the time. It makes sense that all of their names for things were pretty clunky. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they they, they don't name like like this. And this is one of the things about. Okay, one of the real problems with studying Tiananmen, right, is that like, okay, so we have really good accounts from the students, right? Because some of the students flee and they're able to make it out. We have like jack shit basically from the workers. We have. Well, what we do have is we have some of the, the, the we have some of the documents they produced, and we have some, a lot of interviews that were done with with people there, and they, I don't know, they have very very idiosyncratic ways of expressing what they believe, and so you know you'll get things where like okay they're like okay wait we we believe in the rule of law right, and then the next sentence will be like. Uh, uh, we, we, we have calculated the exact amount of surplus value that has been extracted from us, according to Marx, and it's like, what? Because, yeah, the thing that they're doing is, like, they're, they're, they're synchronizing this new they're, – they're synchronizing sort of, like, a, a political tendency that's trying to address the sort of dual dictatorships they're dealing with, right? Like, because they're, they're, they're dealing at the same time with, like, this political dictatorship the party has and also the fact that their bosses now, like, completely control everything that they do. And because of this, they, you know, they, they, they wind up being like the last or I guess technically second to last because Argentina happens. So that that's sort of convoluted mess in itself. But they're they're in, in the 20th century. Like they, they are the last people who are fighting for democracy in the factory. And this, like to a large extent, is what Tiananmen is actually about. It's, it's the culmination of a, a century and a half long war between the democratic wing of the classical workers movement and like every single other ideology that exists. And these guys oh, over, over that century and a half long span, they're going to fight communists. They're going to fight capitalists. They're going to fight liberals and fascists and monarchies and republics and social democracies and theocracies. And at Tiananmen, they're going to lose one more time. And that defeat, the, the fact that they lose here, the fact that these people get slaughtered, the fact that like they're crushed so effectively that no one even remembers what they were. No one even remembers they exist, or like much less like what they were fighting for. This defeat is the origin of the modern world. That one man rule in the factory, like the the the, the individual single boss who has total control and power over you, is in in its sort of thousand forms is the author of the hell that is the twenty first century. And uh, when we come back from this commercial break, uh, we are going to look at the international part of the struggle that Tiananmen is sort of like the conclusion of. So here's some ads, uh, maybe from Woo, Amazon. Here are the a job working at their distribution center. That seems yeah. like a good paying gig. And we're back to uh, look at why you two also must live in uh, the, the 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 absolute one man dictatorship in the factory. So well, it's it's not 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 as much one man. It's the one algorithm you have to you have to listen to what your iPad tells you when you're walking through the Amazon di- distribution center. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they have. <laughs> they, they, it, it is funny because it's like they, they, we they, they've somehow made a worse version of it. It was like okay, they sure so have. They, yeah, it's like it's, it's like, it, yeah, it's like okay now now, now now you are ruled by a computer whose whose job it is to make one person an extremely large amount of money. It's even fur- further like depersonalized and further disjointed from actually being a human. Yeah, it's it's 
I don't know. There's there's there, 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 there's some metaphor here, which if I wasn't like sick out of my mind uh, about how like power depersonalizes and dehumanizes you until the point where you are replaced with a machine that you can make here. But uh, I I don't know. One in one in every two days, the rumor randomly starts bidding on me. So, yeah, I, well, I can't I can't do that. <laughs> the, lesson, well, the lesson here, the lesson here is, is that. When you're thinking about factories and how bosses suck and how it's not great to, to work in a factory, just have a boss that tells you what to do. The lesson is, is that it can always get worse because it could always be a computer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> so, okay, so to, to, to get a sense of like what this fight is and like how, how we got to Tiananmen, uh, we need to go back to the revolutions of 1848, which is at, at first glance, not like n- not an incredibly obvious place to start um okay if if, if you want like a, a really detailed like blow for blow account of the revolutions of 1848 uh go listen to the revolutions podcast uh it it's good i am not gonna do it here because oh my god there's so much stuff but the, the, the very short version is that so in, in 1848 across europe there's a bunch of revolutions that are collectively known while sometimes known as like the springtime of the peoples and this is this is the first revolution. This is the first wave of revolutions where socialists are like a real thing. Um, like Frederick Engels, like that Engels, like the, the Marx and Engels Engels is like on a barricade with a rifle fighting in Prussia. There's uh. like, yeah, I'm not gonna. Sadly, I can't get into August von Willich here. But like, go 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 Google August von Willich. He's he's wild. There, there's a huge revolution in France where they like they they finally depose the king, and you know th- th- this there's this question here. And as these revolutions look like they're winning, there's this question of how far democracy is going to go and what it's going to mean. Um, and yeah, you, you have a large thing. You have and this. This is in in a lot of ways very similar to what you're dealing with with in in, in China in, in 1989. Inside of France, you have the split, right? You have the split between, you know, like the, the people who are like who are like French radicals, but in the sense of like the original French Revolution, who are you know okay, they 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 want. Like they 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 want an elected democracy. They absolutely do not want to, like, deal with the fact that the, the that the workplace is not a democracy. And then you know, and you have you have a bunch of socialists, and the socialists are like, "Hey, can we do something about like property relations and like the fact that there's a bunch of poor people with no jobs?" And you know, and the socialists get slaughtered, but you know, they they don't die. I mean, okay. That, you just said they get slaughtered. <laughs> I got slaughtered. <laughs> well, okay, so a, a lot of these people get horribly slaughtered, but a lot of them escape and like the make it out. The ideology lives on. Yeah, well, the ideology lives say. on, and okay. and so a, a lot of the lead. Well, I mean, there's an interesting story here. Like a lot of the leaders like live on. A lot of these people, like for example, so a bunch of people flee to the U.S. and they wind up being like the like a lot of the officer corps of the Union Army in in the Civil War is made up by these by these socialists who like had to flee after the revolutions failed. And like Prussia and stuff, but yeah, they're, 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 so but many of them do, in fact, die. Die, yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't go great for them. It and and you know, and you 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 get to see one of the other things that's going to happen a lot, which is that okay, so like the 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 the, the sort of like the the the, the French like like the, the 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 French radicals who are like pro capitalism but also pro democracy, 
like ally yeah. with the conservative factions, and then they also all get killed when Napoleon uh, <laughs> Napoleon the Third takes power. But man, you it's know. it's really it's really it's really hard to root for someone here in that in that. Yeah, context. I know. It's, it's like, like this is really like like the 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 revolution produces its own grave diggers shit. Like, oh hey, what what did you expect was going to happen when you allied with like the landlords and I? Uh, Good thing, Napoleon III. Good thing this, like, this good thing this mistake will never nope, be made again. Nope. Uh, good good thing we're not about to democracy. talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Pay, pay no mind to the rest of this episode. Yeah, anyway, continue. So, yeah, you have the split between people who want electoral democracy but, you know, dictatorships in the workplace and these people who want like democracy in the workplace. And this also prefigures a split inside of socialism itself. Um, for, for, you know, for, for, for the, and this isn't even, I, I'm, I, 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 like in my script, I say like for, for, for the most radical factions of socialism, you know, like control over the means of production, which is like the thing that you want means that like production is controlled either by like free associations of workers, like, you know, direct democratic unions, this is later called syndicalism or like workers councils. And that, that's, you know, I say it's the most radical faction, but like that, that's a very popular conception of like what this is going to be. Like if you yeah. read Marx, like. Marx is like, oh yeah, free associations of workers, sure. But you know, as as the sort of like 1840s roll into the 1860s and the 1870s, the, there's this faction of the movement that becomes just like obsessed with with the bureaucratic technologies of the state, and you know, like they 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 watch the state really get involved in the economy in a way that it, it like kind of hasn't before. Then they they in over the course of sort of industrialization, they watch with like incredible envy as they see like these incredibly elaborate like planning schemes they see the, the state building roads and canals and railroads and then entire cities with like these like complex electrical grids and like gas lines and plumbing systems and especially trains like specifically trains this drives them all completely insane and they become they they, they begin to believe that like a, a single centralized planning body like not an democratic association of workers like a, a single centralized state planning body can like you know bring about the long sought after like cooperative commonwealth of socialism and all all these people get they get obsessed with like central planning right and th- this becomes this starts to sort of like consume more and more of the left um in in germany which is home to like the powerful german social democratic party which is like probably the most powerful socialist party in the world at this point the socialists become divided into two camps there, there's the revisionists led by edward bernstein who like he like renounces Marxism and revolution and like entirely in favor of reforming capitalism in the state from like within. And then, you know, you have these Orthodox Marxists that are like led by Karl Kotsky, whose whole thing is that he hates Bernstein. And like the only thing that these two people, that these two groups agree on is that I, uh, <laughs> the only thing they agree on is that bureaucratic state planning is the thing you're supposed to be fighting for and not like democratic workplaces. And this leads the SDP to like, they, they 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 do a lot of things that are like disastrous. Um, one of the things that they wind up doing a lot is like actively working with the bosses to like destroy the like workplace autonomy for their own unions. So like there'll, there'll be things where it's like like I don't they, there's, like, there's a famous example of, like there's like a like a, I think they're like a they're a metal workers union. I think they make knives or something, and th- they have a lot of control over the production process, right? They they can control like how much stuff gets produced, the process, like how it works, like what they're actually doing. And the SDP is like, no, this is bad because this is inefficient. And so they like basically crush their own union. And this, this goes in really disastrous directions, but we're still, uh, the, the single person who becomes like the most obsessed with like the potential of bureaucratic state planning is, uh, one very, very, very obscure guy named Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. 
Uh, who I, I don't of, expect friend, anyone to have heard friend of. of. <laughs> friend of the pod. Yeah. Friend, friend, friend of the pod. I just said Leninich. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Keep that in. Yeah. So as David Graeber points out, uh, Lenin's obsession with like the German postal service is such that like, okay, so he, he writes a very famous book about like what a future socialist state is going to be called state and revolution. And like almost all of it is a lie, but he also says this in it. Um, a witty German social democrat of the uh, 1870s called the postal service an example of the socialist economic system. This is very true. At present, the postal service is a business organized along the lines of a state capitalist monopoly, blah, blah, blah. Imperialism is this whole thing, but like imperialism is making everything also this. Uh, but so to organize the whole national economy on the lines of the postal service so that the technicians foremen, bookkeepers, as well as all officials that receive no salaries higher than a workman's wage, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat. This is our immediate aim. And if you think about what this means for about five seconds, right, what he's saying is that socialism is the entire economy being planned by a bureaucratic state. And, you know, this, this, like... This sits off this like massive series of confrontations with the part of the workers movement who, you know, like want to control the work that they do. And, you know, like, like make, I'm like, you know, the, the people who like, who think that like the revolution means that they're actually going to be able to make decisions over their work and not, you know, just like work for like a slightly different set of bureaucrats. And this struggle between, you know, this, the sort of like new socialist bureaucrats and like democracy in the workers movement is you know, it's 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 an enormous part of the struggle that happens here, and and there's there's like another version of it happening between the workers' movement itself and the capitalist state. Like in 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 the 1880s, um, the workers' movements in like in Italy and in, uh, Germany and like France to a lesser extent, that they have these they, they 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 form these parties that are called like states within a state, and you know the, these things are the these massive networks of these workers' institutions. They have like free schools, they have workers' associations, they have like friendly societies, they have libraries, they have theaters, they have like unions, they have co-ops, they have like neighborhood associations, they have tenant unions, they have mutual aid societies. And, you know, and these things are all run democratically by like, by, by the workers who form the associations. And, you know, and like the people who are doing this are like, you know, the, the, the hope is that like, this is going to be the basis for the new social society, right? It's like, okay, we, we, we can just come together and like do this stuff. To, and we, can, we can do it democratically and we can administer this stuff ourselves. And, the, and these things are re- are enormously popular, um, and you know, and and this like terrifies this the sort of old ruling class. Um, and Otto von Bismarck, who's the guy basically running the German state in this period, like he he his solution to this is to create like bureaucratic state run versions of like all of these things. So he he creates like state run libraries, state run theaters, like state run welfare services, and he's using these as as, as like a, a replacement to the sort of workers' institutions. And he he has this great line where he tells an American observer, "quote My idea was to bribe the working classes, or shall I say, to win them over, to regard the state as a social institution existing for their own sake and invested in the, and interested in their welfare." And like this works. This is this is an enormous success. This is one of the greatest propaganda crews ever because. Like it, it, it's it's so successful in convincing people that the thing that they're fighting for is like the state bureaucratic version of this thing and not the version where they do it themselves. That like when when the socialists like take power, they they confuse Bismarck's like literally the welfare state bribe thing that he he like made to buy off the movements. Like they confuse that with socialism itself. And like to this day, everyone believes this. It's like 
it's it's i don't know I, I lose my mind constantly over this because all of these things that bismarck developed like specifically to destroy the, social, the socialist movement everyone was like oh my god this is socialism it's like no no please stop and you know and th- th- this is really effective particularly on the leadership of the movement but like the actual like people in these parties like in these movements don't forget it and and as as the sort of like 20th century draws to a close and you get like the Sorry, as as the 19th century draws to a close and you get like the 20th century, the workers who are like doing the uprisings are are not sort of like like the you know the the, the workers who are doing the uprisings haven't like drank in the Kool Aid and the thing that they do immediately when they start doing uprisings is they start building these democratic institutions, particularly workers councils. Um, the, the most famous of these are like other workers councils that form sort of spontaneously in the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1917. These are like this is actually like this is what like these the they're called Soviets because Soviets just like the word for council in Russian and th- these these things are originally these like ad hoc strike committees and then they eventually become these like like formalized like like elected bodies of representatives from like the various factories who are like coordinating a strike and okay so in 1905 they they lose and they all die but <laughs> in 1917 uh they 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 do this again and they form the Soviets again and this time the councils start to take like a larger role in coordinating production directly and, you know, coordinating between different like factories and industries. And they, 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 they turn into the sort of like counterpower thing to the new government. And this kicks off this open period of warfare that stretches like literally from Italy to Argentina between the, the different socialist factions who like people, like the different factions of this movement who want democracy in the factory. And this like a lot newly formed, like anti-democratic alliance of like social Democrats, Bolsheviks and capitalists who like you know are like okay well some of them are in favor of like you can have democracy okay there's a whole range of this thing right like the thing that unites all of these movements the social democrats the bolsheviks the capitalists and later the fascists is that they like emphatically like do not want democracy in the factory and they're willing to put aside their differences to make sure it doesn't happen but you know there's still there's still a huge fight that happens here between between 1917 and 1920 you get workers councils in you get workers' councils in Germany, Poland, Austria, Ukraine, Ireland, and Ireland. There's there's these like two giant revolts by syndicalist workers' unions in Brazil and Argentina, and the, these all get crushed. Um, in Italy, Italy has like one of the most intense conflicts between these like a lot of syndicalists and the Italian state, and they 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 have this this really famous like set of factory occupations where instead of like so like before this, people would go on strike, right? You go on strike and you you leave your factory. And in, in Italy, they were like, okay, wait, what if we just stayed in the factory and took it over so that they couldn't like, just like restart production with scabs and we now control the factory? And there's this huge wave of it in, in Italy in, in the late 19, 19 like, teens and early 1920s. And, you know, it, it looks like for a little, for like a, a bit, it, like, it really looks like they're going to bring down the government. But the, the factory occupations get crushed, but they don't, they don't get crushed by the government. They get crushed by the Italian socialist party and like their union, the general confederation of labor. And like, th- this is how fascism wins in Italy. Like to a large extent, it's that like when, when like, you know, and, and this happens in Germany too. It's like when, 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 when sort of the social Democrats and the capitalists are faced with this possibility that like workers could take over the factories, the social Democrats turn on them and just kill them all. And the problem with that is that, like, okay, well, who, 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 who do you do the killing with? And the answer is the fascists. And then the social democrats, like themselves, all get exterminated by the fascists. It, it's, it's this like, 
you know, it, it is it is a it is a it is a terrible cycle that we're going to see like literally over and over and over again. Um, yeah, it, it it's bad. Um, that sounds not great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, do 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 you know who else will uh, slaughter your your factory council? Oh no! Oh oh! I I I actually know this one. Mm. All right, all right, Garrison, go. We have a few options here. There is uh, our our good friends at the Washington State Patrol. Um, if you're trying to set up a highway business next to the highway <laughs> and run it, run it via workers' cancel, state patrol come up, be like, not on this highway, yeah, you're done. Um, probably also like Amazon or something. Who knows? Yeah. And we're back to see, you know, okay, okay. We, we, we are back to see like the worst defeats that they're going to have that, that like the people who want like a factory council are going to have this period, which for once actually has nothing to do with Amazon or the capitalists whatsoever, which is that like the, the worst balling they're going to get is from Lenin and the Bolsheviks who, I, I, I don't know how many people sort of like know the history of the Russian revolution, but like the factory councils are the people who like basically put the Bolsheviks in power in the first place. Like to a large extent, like they're the, they're the, they're the people who like were the shock troops of this and like literally the moment Lenin takes power, he starts undermining the Soviets. Um, he, he publishes this thing like 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 three or four days after the October Revolution. He he publishes this thing called the draft decree on workers control, which is like, you know, he, he, he basically is like he's, he's trying to like shift power from these councils to the Bolshevik Party in the state. And this doesn't really work initially because these groups are like pretty powerful. But. In, in you know he 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 pub- publicly Lenin's like no we draw we derive our power from the Soviets like we're 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 the people who support the, these councils but then like Lenin's he's like chipping away from them and then in 1918 he writes this thing he writes this 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 uh, paragraph from the immediate task of the Soviet government which is like one of the wildest things I've ever read in my life I was which, read which this. is saying a lot it's 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 wild it is jeez okay. Uh, Unquestioning submission to a single will is absolutely necessary for the success of labor processes that are based on large-scale machine industry. Today, the revolution demands in the interest of socialism that the masses unquestioningly obey the single will of the leaders of the labor process. Which is like, what? Like, what? How how about you I- I- explain to our good viewers why that is so bonkers? Like, okay, if, some if, of them might just hear that and be like, "Oh, leftist words, cool." I moving mean, on. Even just the first two words, unquestioning submission, yeah. makes me like that part. Yeah. Like, unquestioning submission. The whole thing about like the masses must unquestionably obey the will of the single leader. Like, what? No, hard. Pass. This is like, <laughs> like what is happening? Here? This is, uh, you know, and the, the thing that's happening here is that Lenin, Lenin is being really candid about what it means for there to be a boss like what what it means for there to be someone whose position is above you that can order you to do literally whatever they want and if you don't obey them like bad things happen and you starve or get shot yeah he he's 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 incredibly candid about this right like this 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 is what like having a boss means it means like questioning submission to the single will of a leader this is which is like this this is how i talk about sophie all the time yeah oh my god (laughs) Well, shaking her head. I'm with you, Sophie. Can't Thanks, believe Gare. you just said that. You're, yeah, you're welcome. Whatever you say, Sophie. Thanks, Gare. <laughs> 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 uh, 
God, I'm thinking about this. There's this line. Um, it's sort of tangentially related to the story. I read this thing once about so the workers who took over the Sorbonne. Actually, I think it was, a, was it the students who the a bunch of students like take over this uh like like the the, the like the like the big academy in in Paris in 1968, and they send this like t- I think it's a telegram to like the Chinese embassy. And like the end of it is, what well, I, I think if I'm remembering the exact words correctly, it's uh, the the re- the revolution will not be complete until the un- the revolution will not be complete until the last capitalist is hung with the entrails of the last bureaucrat. Ah, uh, <laughs> incredibly like, hot. Yeah, <laughs> sixty-eight was wild. That's that's the thing this brought to mind for some reason, but. You know, I mean, going back to sort of Lenin and his like unquestioning like submission to the single world, like he he's more candid about what like one man rule in the factory or like having a boss you have to obey like means. But the system he's describing like isn't different than any other political system. Like Bolshevik rule in the factory like isn't really different than capitalist, social democratic, or fascist rule. And you know, the the movement for democracy in the factory. As as you know, as 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 these people are crushed, especially in Kronstadt in 1921, like the movement for, for democracy in the factory is faced by four implacable enemies who are willing to put aside all of their ideological differences to ensure that like no one ever like gets to control their workplace. And you know, and as as the 20s blend to the early 1930s, like the movement seemed to have disappeared, but they didn't. They absolutely didn't. Even though even though they got murdered by the fascists, the communists. The Social Democrats and the capitalists, uh, they're, they're going to be back next episode to do like 12 more revolutions. And yeah, that, that, that's, that, 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 come, come, come back tomorrow for us talking about like why these revolutions happened, uh, what the ruling class did to stop them. And then, yeah, the, the lead up to Tiananmen Square to see the sort of like the, the final stand of the Chinese working class and yeah, like get to what Tiananmen actually was. What a cliffhanger. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. 
It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Podcasts. Yeah, that that counts as an intro. I'm, I'm, I'm look. It, yes, we've, we've we've now started the podcast. The podcast that we are starting is it could happen here, and I it's, it's me, Christopher Wong. I'm 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 doing I'm doing the host thing, and I have a bunch of other people with me who do a lot of things. Uh, I have Garrison. Yes. I have Shireen. Yes. And I have Sophie. Our lovely boss, Sophie yeah. Lichterman. <laughs> All praise on high. Your word's not Bow mine. Bow down. Your word's not mine. <laughs> so weird. I did not enjoy that at all. <laughs> Chris, want to take over? So, so Sophie, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, lacks the sheer ruthlessness to uh, crush the workers' movement. Well, we will but, see. Yeah, that, that, that <laughs> remains to be determined. So, oh, <laughs> I, I don't buy it. <laughs> so Sophie, Sophie is very sad. I'm sorry, Sophie. Thank you. Um, but so when, when we last left off, Lenin, Lenin has like in theory crushed the last sort of remaining factions of like the workers' movement who want democracy at the factories. But unfortunately for the Leninists, like literally no many how no matter how many workers they kill, and they are going to kill enormous numbers of workers. The demand for democracy in the factory like just refuses to die. For, for over 100 years, the development of this sort of mass factory system, a logistical infrastructure that you need to support it, uh, maybe most importantly, coal mines and railroads that are used to transport stuff, generate this incredibly militant working class that sees you know democratic control over the workplace as like the fundamental aspect of its liberation. Um, ideologically, this is you know th- this is this is manifested in like a series of interlocking beliefs about like the nature of the working class and like what class society is. Um, all of which are sort of necessary components of this, like, what becomes this, like, incredibly, like, this, like, instinctive formation of workers' councils the moment, like, an uprising happens. And this is, this is something that's, that's very interesting about, about the 20th century is that, like, yeah, like, when, whenever there's, like, a crisis, someone's, someone's, like, like everyone in the factory is like, okay, we're, we're, we've taken control of the factory now, like, we, we, we're forming a council, we're forming a giant assembly, and, like, we don't do this anymore, <laughs> And we're going to come back to, like, why we don't do this anymore, but, like, this hasn't happened, like, the, the last time it happened was, like, in Argentina in 2001, and I don't even know if Garrison, Garrison might have been alive for that. 
Thanks. But like, like yeah, like, it's, it, 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 I will say the other time it does happen is when af after a after a recording session, when our boss Sophie leaves, me me and Chris will stay on the line to talk. That's true. Usually, usually about Star Wars. Um, yeah. And that in a way kind of is a workers council just for the factory of podcasting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, talk yeah. about Star Wars in front of me. I feel so oh, bad for okay. Sophie. <laughs> next 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 anyway, time we will on. <laughs> just a little puppy face. <laughs> it's okay. Thanks, Shireen. Your petite bourgeois tactics won't work on me, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, we've all oh, all, all the people on the subreddit who think that we hate Sophie are going to just have a field oh, day no! with this episode. That is my favorite recurring conspiracy theory bit. That's a, that's a real conspiracy? Oh, oh yeah. man. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow, I have a lot of catching up on to do. You, do, you do not. <laughs> no. <laughs> you do not because it's not true. <laughs> Run away. So me, me, meanwhile, meanwhile, so it, 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 in the period when people actually like did this seriously, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of ideological things that come together to, to make it so that when people like, you know, like when, when bread prices increase too much, this is what people do. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the physical experience of what being a worker is in like, you know, the 19th to 20th centuries. Like you have these like these, 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 these incredibly rapid like technological expansions and you know the, the the people who are who are doing this stuff like see themselves as the creator of the new world right like and, and th this like literally this is happening like th these are the people who are literally like they are building the cities right like all all of the sort of the, the infrastructure of the modern world is physically being created by them and this creates this you know like if if, if you are the person who is like who has transformed like this fishing village into this giant industrial city right um you know, you, you, you see yourselves as, as the creator, like literally physically the creator of this new world that's being developed. And then the second belief that, that it produces that drives this movement is that the people who produce this world should be its inheritors. And so, and th this, this, this sort of, this is what drives the workers movement in this period, which is that like, okay, so the, the, if, 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 if you, if you are literally physically creating the new world and you think that because you have created it, it should be yours, uh, the, next, the, the the thing that you do because it's not yours right like you don't like yeah you you, you know the, like the, the the people who build cities are not the people who own the cities and you yeah. know if you see this yeah like yeah okay like the city is actually owned by like three real estate speculators and like a bunch of cops and a more applicable examples like the people who build the podcast does not own the podcast yeah right? no we don't own the podcast like we no, we are exactly, uh, exactly. applicable yeah. result that you know that can that you know everyone understands that example yeah Every, yeah we, I, I actually don't think that people understand that we don't own the podcast it's actually unclear to me i i, I people people have weird things about how podcasting works but yeah we, we don't own the podcast we just create it and we, we do all the work and then sophie sits yeah. in her leather chair <laughs> Looking down at, at all my of the my leather all the, chair. All the <laughs> not a leather chair. Over. I think. Like, I think look I at all my podcast creations I have created, and then all of us climate change has gotten writers, so bad. How could you think I could sit here on an eighty-five degree day in a leather chair? <laughs> if you're going to insult me, at least get your facts right. <laughs> my word. A leather chair. Continue, Chris. 
Okay, so for 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 the, for, the, for the people who are like actually watching their boss like sitting around smoking a giant cigar in a factory uh-huh. while they pound like hammers or like work at a hospital <laughs> and get a watch like Sophie, oh Sophie just started picking so up a, a massive cigar and a comically large cigar. Robert Incredible actually left timing. this for me to give to, to give to prop, but. <laughs> Because, for the record, whenever I do hang out with my other boss, Robert, he often does sit in some chair smoking a cigar. And I do think it is, in fact, leather. (laughs) Okay, so we're describing Robert. He forces me to slave away on my laptop writing scripts and yeah just sits in look his chair. we work in the podcast minds yeah it's it's it, it is it is really hard out there yeah and <laughs> continue <laughs> so okay so like the the, the 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 belief that you produce the world and that if you produce it, you should own it is like this this is not unique to the part of the workers movement that like you know thinks that also you should like have a democracy in the factory and like should, you should have the autonomy to decide how you do your work and what needs to be done uh, that that those beliefs like broadly comprise the ideology of like the entire workers' movement, and and yeah. by you know by 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 the 20th century, the workers' movement is really really broad, right? I mean, it stretches from sort of like really mild social democratic trade unionists to like the intellectual heads of these like Leninist vanguard parties. It, but what what makes a democratic wing unique is that their concern is the fundamental alienation of factory life, and and this this I mean originally like it is very much factory life, but like this this gets expanded out. As this goes on into sort of the the, the like the, the the fundamental alienation of labor itself, which, this, which is this this condition of being reduced to an object by bosses who use you as a tool to do something, and you know, and this this is a concern for everyone in some sense, but but for the Leninists and Social Democrats, alienation is just like a product of ownership or distribution, right? So you know, if 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 that's what you believe, the way you defeat alienation is through the working class of productive capacity, not in it, not in sort of like any kind of like innate human, like humanity or creativity. Like all you have to do is like, well, okay, you, you flip a switch, right. And the factory is now owned by the state instead of being owned by like JP Morgan or something. And like, now your alienation is gone. Uh-huh. That's how it works. Yeah. Or, or and, 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 you know, social democracy, it's like, well, okay. So you, 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 you flip a switch and taxes get higher and now you have a union but you're still working for gold. You're still working for the Goldman Sachs. But you know, but for 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 the wing of the workers' movement that you know actually cares about democracy, this doesn't solve anything, right? Like as yeah. as long as the, the the fundamental relation of being the like of, of being an object, right? As as long as like you fundamentally, the worker are are not are not a human being who has agency and control and autonomy over their life. As long as you're just an object. That you know, like you're you're you like you 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 are a living human tool that the one man ruler of the factory can like, you know, can can wield around to do whatever they want. As as long as that persists, changes in ownership structure and you know, like health benefits miss the entire point. And th- this kind of the, the the degradation that comes from just being a tool can only be solved by returning agency and autonomy to the working class. And that means like actually giving the class control over the production process. And, you know, in, in, in 1936 in Spain, workers are like, fuck this, and decide to take the entire thing into their own hands. And they do this by just seizing their workplaces in mass. And this becomes known as the Spanish Revolution. Um, and it, it is one of the most extensive sort of experiments in, like, workers' democratic self-management or, like, whatever whatever you want to call people making their own decisions in the workplace, like, that has ever happened. 
like especially in the modern era like everything from like public utilities to like bakeries to hospitals to shoe factories like falls under the direct control of these like democratic unions and once their bosses have been like you know chased from the premises and like flee in terror uh the, these workers set about like transforming the entirety of spanish society along democratic lines like they they, they pool their resources together collectively and they, they allocate them democratically for the benefit of you know like society as a whole and for a brief moment, this works. They have this incredible, like this triumphant experiment in democratic self-management and output increases dramatically and social services are expanded. And like in 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 the span of two years in the middle of a civil war, uh, like the workers of Spain are able to create a universal healthcare system that expands care into like, like rural areas of Spain where like you couldn't get it before. But, you know, the problem is, once again, is that this is happening during a civil war and, and a lot, like, you know, in, in Using sort of like nominally anti-fascism, like as as their sort of like, you know, the, 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 they're using the, the threat of the need to oppose fascism as as a sort of front, like a, a a front for what they're actually doing. You get this alliance of liberals, liberal socialists, and Stalinists who just like brutally stamp out any attempt to do democratic self-management, and like like you you have like Soviet cadres and like NKVD, like Soviet secret police guys, like literally leading armies into in, into these cities and like like. Kill, like killing the workers and then physically like taking control of these factories that people had seized and giving them back to the bosses which is you know this is this is great this is great communist stuff and yeah the you know it, and this 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 ends exactly how you would expect it to end with uh yeah like the, the, the stalinists get everything they want they murder all of the the people who want like a factory council and then they all get killed by franco but you know undeterred by sort of the casualty tolls of these like massacres by people who want bosses. Uh, this just keeps happening. And, you know, by the time you get to the, the, the 1950s, 1960s, like all this stuff is back. Like there, there's, there's factory councils again in Hungary. You get them in Italy and France and like Czechoslovakia in 1968. There's like, like there, 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 there there's councils being like, there, there's, there's communes being formed in like Vietnam. There's like, there's, there, we've talked about the Cordones and, uh, uh, in in Chile on the show before, like the, the the these things are happening everywhere, and I think Hungary in particular is a really interesting one because th- so th- there's a revolution in in Hungary against sort of the Soviets in in 1956 that's it gets a lot of the same liberal mythologizing that you get with Tiananmen, but like kind of more egregious here. Uh, so it, I, I don't know. I, I think like I I, I got taught the, this revolution in in schools so is like one of the few ones that we actually get. And they taught it as this, like, this is, like, the Hungarian Revolution was this, like, kind of nationalist, like, liberal democratic revolution for people who wanted, like, democracy and freedom and, like, free markets. And then, like, you know, if, if, if you go read about what the people were, at, the people actually doing the revolution were saying, you get quotes like this. Uh, this is a direct quote from a member of one of the Hungarian workers' councils. The time when the bosses decided our fate is over. And it's like, huh, huh, these, these, guys, these guys do not seem like... I don't know. These guys don't seem like liberal Democrats. So, so, so something weird is happening here. There's something that's actually happening is that like Hungarian workers like seize control of their factories and like their workplaces and they form workers councils, and they overthrow the government and then the Russians slaughter them all. But you know, like th- th- this is not a liberal democratic revolution at all. Th- this is a revolt against the dictatorship in the workplace. And there's an identical revolts break out across both the capitalist world and the communist world. And in the newly decolonized societies, you start seeing them too. And, you know, and to, to the sort of, like, dismay of both the communists and the capitalists, who are both like, oh my god, why is everyone keep forming workers' councils? Like, this solution to alienation, like, 
it's not like an ideological thing, right? Like it's it's not that there's like a group of people who are like secretly infiltrating these countries and being like, okay, you need to form workers' councils. This ha- this is ha- this stuff is happening in places where there's just like none of that. So like what one of one of the sort of like movements that that does stuff like this is is the revolution in Algeria. Um, you know, and the the, the, the like they're, 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 like Algeria like does have a pretty high level of of political education, but the, the political education they're getting is from like it's it's from the National Liberation Front, which is like insofar as it's any one thing, it's like it's a nationalist vanguardist movement, which is you know they're they're the people who like fight the French colonizers and beat them, and their ideology like insofar as you can describe one ideology, Jim, like the thing that they want is like the state having this decisive role in national development. But, you know, immediately upon taking power, Ahmed Bembella, who's Algeria's first president, like, discovers that, you know, he he's not actually going to be the one, like, making the decision about what the country's economic structure is going to be because he takes power and a whole bunch of, like, Alge- uh, French people who live in Algeria flee. And basically what happens immediately after is that all of, like, all of these, this property that had been originally, like, held by by, by French sort of, like, colonists – like it, it, it gets immediately seized by the Algerian working class, and you know they build their own workers' councils, and you know Mabella is like, okay, I, I, I guess I guess we have like workers' councils now. Like I, I guess I guess we have sort of like autonomous democratic production, and Mabella is like kind of trying to undermine them, but he doesn't really get a chance to because once again there's a military coup, and Mabella like. He, I think he he escapes and doesn't die, but like the fact, like the, the the councils all sort of get dismantled again. But like the number of times this has happened is getting just like completely out of hand, and it's like yeah, okay, the 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 it's like yeah, okay. So every time this happens, they murder everyone. But like you know, the revolutions keep happening and they keep happening and they keep happening, and you know, it, 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 even even as late as like the late seventies, like it's not clear that 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 like it's it's not clear that the people who want one man role in the factory are going to win. Like th- there's this moment in Italy, 1977, where it's like this, this like giant student, student and worker coalition almost takes power. Um, like in Spain, even after like 50 years of, of like Franco and like the, the fascist dictatorship, like the, the CNT, which is the anarchist union that had done the revolution, like reappears in the seventies again, even though everyone thought it was gone. And like, you know, th- th- this is a real, this is a real source of strife for especially the sort of capitalist managerial elite who are, you know, they, this stuff keeps happening. And it's like, okay, like it it is an unacceptable risk that one of the, one day, one of these groups is going to win. And so they, they start looking for a way to like dismantle this sort of like systemic things that like create that, that cause people to do this. But you know, but they're but they're trying to do it in a way that doesn't involve them giving up their power. Um, so, yeah, as Vicky Osterwald points out, the, this sort of like this like instinctive embrace of like democracy in the factory, like as a political program, is only possible as long as factories, as long as like the factory functions as a point of encounter. Um, she, her, I, I think it was her term for it, when she calls it a dark agora, which is like a, so agora is like like the the sort of like the Greek marketplace in the center of a town. Everyone goes there, and you like talk about things, right? And the factory serves as, as this kind of like, it's this sort of like dark version of it where like, on the one hand, you know, it facilitates these interactions that allow people to sort of like identify with each other and like, you know, create collective meaning by like interacting with each other. But on the other hand, it exists to exploit you and it's like terrible 
and you're just getting, you know, you're getting physically and socially destroyed like every moment you're in it. But, you know, it, it, it's, it still is a place where you can like assemble an identity as like, like you and a bunch of the people around you can go like, hey, like we are workers, right? Like we, we are the working class. And th- this, this is like a shared political identity that you have that allows you to do things. And so the, the thrust of sort of the attack against this takes the form of this attack on like the shop floor as like a, a site of like formation of identities that, that can allow you to like mobilize stuff. And so th- this takes like a number of forms. Um, most famously is there's, there's it's deindustrialization and this sort of like spatial relocation of factories. So like like part of what's going on right is that you have a you have a bunch of people who work in a factory and then they live like around like right around the factories. Right, they they work in a coal mine. And everyone lives in a town around the coal mine, and this means that everyone sees each other constantly and are like constantly like running into each other and like physically talking to each other and. You know, th- th- this is a really good way to create radical politics. So, what what happens is you, you these factories get sent out to the suburbs, and this allows you to to create places where you know workers are isolated from each other. And you know, and the other thing you can do is you turn workers into homeowners, and you you sort of like buy them off with this combination of like cheap credit and this promise that like their houses will not be a financial asset. And so. As the sort of eighties rolls on, the 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 sort of the the, the 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 like the heralded democratization of finance replaces democratization in the factory as sort of the capitalist class. Like the the other thing they do that's like really insidious is they 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 tie like the remaining union pensions into the stock market. And this is stuff like like you see this today with like four hundred one ks, and it means that like if if you want to like have a retirement, you are like physically literally invested in the stock market. Which ties, you know, which ties everyone sort of like into the system, and corporations start to turn workplaces into these like enormous propaganda apparatuses. You get like like Walmart in particular has these like like these mass ideological like programming things that they run that are designed to sort of like get you to identify with like the corporation itself and not with like the other people you're you know like the other people you're with in the class as a whole. And you know, the, and, like the, the other thing that they're able to do is the fact that capital is mobile and workers like aren't allows, you know, combines with, like, logistics advances. And it means that, like, if workers ever start getting an upper hand somewhere, capitalists can just leave. And the process that you see is that as the sort of, the total number of people working in, in the, like, in industrial work keeps decreasing, right? As a percentage of the population, it keeps decreasing. And as this happens, capitalists are just like, okay, screw it, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna pick up our tools and leave. And this spits out, like, enormous populations who are just, like, kicked out of the traditional workforce entirely. And these developments, this is what actually like eventually destroys the classical workers movement is the ability to leave and the sort of destruction of the factory is like a site of stuff. But in order for this to work, the one thing they need is a, a place to move to, right? They, they need somewhere with this large exploitable labor supply that has been like crushed enough that it won't revolt against them. And the capitalist class uh, finds that in uh, our products and services. And we're 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 back. We're 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 back, and we're we're back to China. And okay, so I, I've been talking about the the way this sort of like this this whole system, like this whole factory system, mass production stuff, like develops. But China's weird because this is the one place where the factory system works like really differently than everywhere else. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. One of which is that like, so Chinese like state-owned firms, it's like almost impossible for them to fire someone. Because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for this. So one of them is that, like, people's entire sort of social sphere is built around their work unit. 
And like the work unit is like it's the it's the, the company you work for, and there's this whole sort of like legal apparatus built around it. And it like you know, and like th- this like unit gives you everything from like your retirement to like it like feeds you. Like there's often like entertainment stuff's like tied into it. Like you get health care, you get like child care from it. And the CCP also gets rid of the piece rate system, which is this like this is this thing that like I mean it still so there's a lot of capitalist places to work with this where it's like, okay, so the piece rate system is you pay people for like every unit of something they produce. So like you get paid by like I don't know like how many like how many pounds of like cherries you can pick, and so the, the USSR brings this back because the USSR and the US are really not that different. But China is like nah, this like sucks. This is capitalism, and you know okay like I'm not gonna say the fact Chinese factory system is great, but like because they don't have the peace rate system is because they can't fire people. Uh, you get this very you, you get this weird thing where it's like. The people who run the factories like don't have very good ways to force people to work. And because of this, they, they like they sort of like have to allow this like degree of participation in the worker process, in like in the labor process that like you don't really see most other places. And the other thing they have that I uh, uh, luckily uh Garrison and I also have this is uh, we have the ability to criticize our bosses. Although we we have more of this <laughs> than these guys have. But yeah, ahead. one one day. Yeah, what do you got? One, Go ahead. I I one one okay. We we we've got it. We we don't we don't have our big character poster yet. But like one day, Garrison and I are gonna show up to the office with like giant big character posters with your faces on it that like have specifically you know Roberts love? are gonna have a list of crimes on it. Right. It'd be great. I, my it. favorite part of like big labor protests is when they make those giant like puppets. Yeah, oh, the puppets. <laughs> puppets. Puppet me. If we just make a giant stick puppet version of Robert and Sophie that we just right. create around the office, that that as would, long that, as mine's bigger than Robert's, that's fine. We can do that. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Full support. So we we got to do this in China. It's it's weird. Like you have the ability to do this, but like it's like run through the party. And so if someone gets unpopular enough, like the party will like start a campaign about how bad like that one boss is. And then you can show up to like the meeting and go like, hey, I hate my boss. This guy sucks. But then they just replace him with like another boss. Right. So it, it's not like it, it, it's not actually a democratic system, really. But the way that it works ensures that like the, the people who are managers are like pretty popular, at least to some extent, like are popular and people don't like really hate them. And this means that, you know, because there's all of this stuff that makes the Chinese factory system different from, like, the other systems, uh, and also because of, like, structural stuff in Maoism that I, I mean, I could talk about that, but I, I don't like talking about Maoism. But basically, the, the product of this is that, like, you have in China during this period a lot of demands for democracy, but they're really, they're not, they're not tied to the workplace at all. They're 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 mostly like political demands for like democracy in the party or stuff like that, and that means like you know at least in the cities, the system like kind of works okay-ish until the Cultural Revolution, where everything falls apart, and this means that it is at long last time for me to do the Cultural Revolution rant, which is something I have been oh, planning good. for like. Go for I, I know you've been waiting for this. I'm yeah, so I'm very I'm, I'm very excited you. about this. I've, I've been waiting for an excuse, and I finally have one. Okay, so the, the Cultural Revolution rant is that everyone gets the Cultural Revolution completely wrong. Like, everyone. It, like, every, like, it, it, it's, like, 
it, 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 it's one of the rare events where like it's misinterpreted in like exactly the same way by both the people who support it and the people who oppose it. Um, and, and okay, the, the first thing to understand about this, right, is like okay, so the 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 initial, the very very beginning of the Cultural Revolution, like it's basically a bunch of like teenagers, kind of like it's like middle schoolers essentially, and they're attacking these they're attacking like other kids at their school and these kids are kids who have what's called a black blood background like black blood which means that like they're they're the children of people who were from like quote-unquote bad class backgrounds and this is really weird for a number of reasons one because you have you you have a sort of like a pseudo class system based on like who your parents were right you have people who have red blood who had like good class backgrounds or like your parents are workers or your parents work with the party or something and then you have people who are from like bad class backgrounds, quote unquote, who like are persecuted. And like, okay, like I, I don't really care that much if you're like persecuting like a Shanghai oligarch who like collaborated with the French and the Japanese imperialists or whatever. But like, a this extends to like the children of these people, and a lot of the children of these people like weren't even alive when their parents were like, you know, like doing stuff that was bad. And, and the other thing is that like. The, the term bad class background, this is really loose. Like I I, I know people whose families were decla- like declared like black class backgrounds who have black blood and like you know they 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 weren't allowed to hold any government position. And the reason that this happened to them was that her dad had made bird feeders before the revolution, and they considered that like petite bourgeois. And it's like this is like this is like like what like what what are you doing? Like you 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 you've reproduced like you've turned class into like a pseudo race thing that's like her like you like inherit from your parents, even though like their parents don't own property anymore because you've done so it's, it's really bizarre. And, and, and what's, what's happening here is the kids from the red class backgrounds are, 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 you know, they're the, they're the kids of the new, of the new Chinese elite. And they're just like picking on and attacking the kids who are like now this, this sort of like, like my minority class. And so what it amounts to is the beginning of this is a bunch of privileged rich kids who are like, attacking the bunch of kids who are being persecuted for stuff that's like not their fault at all and you know part and the other the other part of this like this is the part that people i think get is like mao is trying to like play power games inside the party blah 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 blah. but you know things get more and more chaotic and you get you get start getting these attacks on like ccp bureaucrats and cadres and stuff because mao is trying to like mao is trying to solidify his place in the party and he's blah 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 there's other stuff that's happening um but then it gets really interesting um so, so th- this starts in 1966, right? And at the very beginning of 1967, there's something there's something called the January Storm, which is where a bunch of rebel workers just seize control of Shanghai and like they run the party out, they run the they run I think they run the army out too, and you know and now like they 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 control the city of Shanghai and this is like an oh fuck moment for Mao because you know, n- now he has to, like, deal with this city that has been taken over by its own working class. And and I found this, this incredible line from Zhou Enlai, who's having a meeting with Mao, and they're trying to figure out what to do about the fact that, uh, like, this, 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 like, that Shanghai has been seized by, by these workers. And I'm, I'm just going to read this. When asked whether the new leadership should be elected from the bottom up, Zhou Enlai replied bluntly that, quote, Anarchism is bound to develop if we immediately implement direct elections of the Paris Commune type. And I, I think this is like this is this really incredible like like thing you can find, right? Because it's like, okay, well, th- th- there, there, there's two things that can happen here. One is either like, okay, you 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 give these people democracy and the ability to vote, 
right? And Joe and Lion Mao look at this and are like, that would be anarchism. We can't do that. And the second thing is you don't do that and you repress them. And they, they take the second line. And, you know, okay, like it, it takes them a bit to get this ramped up, right? It takes them a bit to get the sort of kind of revolution thing they're doing to like stop all of this rebel stuff that they've, they've started to, to, to get. It. it takes them about a year. But, but by 1968, the students and the workers who had like, you know, done done this sort of uprising stuff. Start getting slaughtered, like just just massacred, like killed on an unimaginable scale. Uh, the, 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 and then this is this is where everyone gets the Cultural Revolution completely wrong because everyone, the entire memory of the Cultural Revolution is from basically the first two years of it, right? Which is like all the stuff about like like you know like professors being marched out onto the street in dunce caps and like students like humiliating the professors and like uh, like party officials being like marched around with like placards on them and like people like that's the stuff and like the, the chaos of the revolution like that's that's stuff everyone remembers that's the first two years of this there's still like i mean you you can art like there, there's there's this the short the short the quote-unquote short culture revolution which is like the, the high point of the activity goes from 1966 to 19, 1969 and then there's like a longer one that goes to like the death of Mao, depending on how you want to count it but almost all of the actual violence in this period happens in this in, in 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 the third phase which is the the, the, the so the, the first phase of the initial uprising and then the, the the rebel groups are fighting each other but then phase three is when the state like cracks down on like like start starts like starts trying to crush this like rebel student factions and I'm gonna read from Walder who did a uh he, so there's a guy named Walder who who went to he did a bunch of work in the Chinese archives where he like went and like found the death tolls and I'm I'm gonna read like he 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 like he goes he goes to a bunch of archives he goes to a bunch of state archives and he like like tracks down the death certificates and like tracks down like who died where, and th- this this is what he wrote about it. More than three fourths of all documented deaths in local annals are due to the actions of authorities in the, in this third phase, and then more than ninety percent of those persecuted for alleged political crimes. So w- what he's saying here is that. 75% of all of the deaths in the entire cultural revolution weren't done by like the revolution parts. They were done by the state murdering the workers faction, the rebel factions. And not only that, 90% of the, of the actual political persecution was done by the state and not by the rebels. And when, 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 when you actually look at what this means, like this means everything, everything anyone ever talks about the cultural revolution is completely wrong. It wasn't that, like the thing that happened in the Cultural Revolution wasn't that sort of student radicalism got out of control and they started killing everyone and it produces all this violence. The thing that actually happens is that there's a student like uprising, right? But what happens is that the the, the, the sort of conservative and state factions just slaughter them. And I, Walt, Walter estimates that the total number of people dead, it's somewhere between 1.1 and 1.6 million people. And again, like 75%, and I think it's actually slightly higher than that like percents of the people who were killed in this are killed by the state. And, you know, th- th- this, this has an enormous effect on, I mean, just everything that happens in Chinese, in Chinese society from then on, because on the one hand, the popular memory of the cultural revolution persists as this thing that was like, this is what happens if you like, if, if people outside the party and like students and radicals, like start like making trouble is that you get all these people dead. But then, you know, you, you have the people inside the state who, like, know how many people they had to kill in order to hold on to power, right? They, they, kill, they kill probably more people than, like, the, you know, the, the, there's, there's, there's a very famous massacre of, like, 
communist or like suspected communist in Indonesia that doesn't get called a genocide because it was technically on political lines, but like was one of the worst anti-communist massacres in history. And they killed more people than that in during this period. And that like that level of violence and the fact that the, the, the people running the state understand what they have to do, it means you, you get you get an elite that's incredibly paranoid about like anything that like smells like organizing happening outside the party. And the other thing that happens is that like the, the most radical students and workers of this period just get they're all dead, right? They killed they killed like they 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 they, they killed like a million people. The you know for, for 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 every one person who got killed, there's about 19 people who were like persecuted in a lot of ways, and that's like a lot of these people are tortured. A lot of these people are like sent to prisons. They're like like really horrible stuff happens to these people, and this process keeps going. Like through through the seven like there was a huge spike in like state killings in 1970, and but by by the end of the 70s like anything that sort of like could have cohered into into like a, a movement that like wants democracy in the workplace for example is just gone because all of, all of the radicals like and and anyone anyone who like wanted anyone who wanted democracy in the factory any of the people who were like even sort of like just like sort of rebellious like these people have all been killed and. The consequence of this is that throughout the through the eighties, you get this politics that's driven by this like sort of like intellectual liberal like liberal democratic politics that ignores just like completely ignores working class entirely, and you know, and the, the, these these people start to take power, and you get Deng Xiaoping. Well, I, I think it, I think it's like right before he takes power, but Deng Xiaoping winds up implementing the one child policy, which is this like incredibly draconian and really successful attempt to just like reestablish the state's like patriarchal control over the household and strips like hundreds of millions of women from like like of 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 autonomy over their own bodies and you know and 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 it, and it really looks like through through the through 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 like the late 70s and the 80s it looks like the, the like the chinese ruling class has succeeded right like they they finally destroyed the, they finally destroyed like any opposition to them but then you know things get very weird which is that Tiananmen happens, and you know, by 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 nineteen eighty nine, like the whole like as, as, like as as a rule, like in general, everywhere the sort of classical workers movement that was like at demanding democracy, the factory, like they're basically done, and so they're they're unable to sort of do their own revolutions. Now the only thing they can do is sort of like latch on to other stuff. But the the problem that the party has is that. So they, they, they'd had a lot of measures in place to try to make sure that you'd never got these kinds of movements in China. And they kind of worked. But when, it, when through the 1980s, like China starts implementing a market economy, right? They start, they start, they start like cutting this, the welfare state. They start like destroying the sort of like limited control that workers has had in the factories. And they kind of like unknowingly reproduced the conditions that have been producing these revolutions in every other country. And you know, as this massive inflation wave hits, they they turn China into this powder keg. And th- this, you know, and this combined with sort of like the, the the liberal democratic students moving, gets you this really interesting and weird ideology that these workers have. And I'm I'm gonna read it from from an interview uh, with 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 one of the workers who was at Tiananmen. Why do a lot of workers agree with democracy and freedom in the workshops? Does what the workers say count or what the leader says? We later talked about it. In the factory, the dictatorship, sorry, in the factory, the director is a dictator. What one man says goes. 
If you view the state through the factory, it's about the same. One man rule. Our objective is not very high. We just want workers to have their own independent organizations. In work units, it's personal rule. For example, if I want to change jobs, the bus company foreman won't let me go. I ought to go home at 5 at 5 p.m., but he tells me to work overtime for two hours, and if I don't, he'll cut my bonus. This is a personal rule. A factory should have a system. If a worker wants to change jobs, they ought to have a system of rules to decide how to do it. Also, these rules should be decided upon by everyone, and then afterwards, anyone who violates them will be punished according to the rules. This is rule by law. Now we don't have this kind of legal system. And, okay, that's a really, like... It, it, I, I don't know. I, I think it's a really interesting sort of like fusion of a whole bunch of stuff, right? Because on the one hand, like the the, the sort of like ruling discourse that's happening, like the, the things the students are talking about is like that we need the democracy, read the rule of law, and, and but you know the, the 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 workers in these factories are looking at the, are looking at like the, the situation they're facing, and they're like, "Huh, we don't have a democracy like here either, right?" And so you get this, you get what's a, a really conservative framing of the sort of this a very the sort of very classical like critique of one man rule in the factory that has been happening for like you know like a hundred years but what's interesting about this is that like any actual attempt to like do this right gets gets you to workers control like democratic workers control in the factory and as, as walder who Wal, walder also wrote um another like he, he's a guy who went and interviewed a bunch of the people who had been of workers who had been involved with this and as 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 they point out, like this, un, un, unlike really like any other time in Chinese history, like the the the, the people who are part of like the Beijing Autonomous uh, Workers Autonomous Federation are you know they the, they don't they don't have an intellectual class like this these are these are just a bunch of workers, and they have very little connection. Like they don't, they they have very little like political connections, right? Like beforehand, like to to the liberal circles, they're just sort of hearing what they're reading, and this is this means that like what what you have here is like it's not like an intellectual driven movement. Like this is this is just a bunch of workers, and for you know for 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 like one final time, their instinct when the when the revolution sort of like starts is to demand democracy in the factory, and this demand like above all others is completely politically unacceptable, and you know and when when the army marches on Beijing. It's it's these workers that they wipe out, and they wipe them out so thoroughly that the fact that this is what these people were fighting for is it's it's scrubbed from the record of the CCP. It's scrubbed like the pro democracy movement doesn't remember it, even though their entire thing is memory. And yeah, and th- this this ensures that the meaning of these actual events, what these people were fighting for, what they were trying to do, has been almost completely lost. And I think at this point we can finally ask what 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 actually was Tiananmen, um, and in some sense in 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 the, in the Chinese context itself, it's a transition between two different Chinese working classes. These protests are sort of like this is the last like political sort of like mobilization of like the of the old Chinese working class, which has been these people who had been in the cities who had been like they 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 they'd been the beneficiaries of this old sort of like socialist period welfare state, and. These people in 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 this reach around Tiananmen, they mount the last attack of the of the classical workers' movement, and when they lose, this entire class, like this this entire urban working class that had been around since like the twenties, that had been sort of the, the the driver of Chinese radical politics, that had been like 
that have been, that have been fighting and striking for like 70, 80 years, they, they're, they're gone. They're completely destroyed. And over, over the course of the economic restructuring in the 1990s, they, they cease to exist as a class. And they're replaced by a, a new Chinese working class, which is drawn from sort of these rural and sort of semi-urban underclasses of the old social system who are like dragged into, who are dragged into the cities from, from their villages, from their towns, and who now fill – actually, well, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are today because – it's been weird because of COVID, but like in, in 2019, there were 277 million of these people – of this enormous market worker like force who formed the backbone of like the entire Chinese working class. And these people who they they have rural household registrations. And this means that they, they don't get any of the benefits, like the, the sort of like welfare benefits that you would get from living in a city. And this means that they're, you know, the, the, they, they constitute like an entirely new class of, of, of workers. And instead of, you know, like whatever sort of privileges had had been like carved out by the old working class, this one gets nothing. And the other thing that they get is this entire raft of sort of capitalist ideology that's baked into like every aspect of their workplace culture. This this is massive attempt in China to get people to buy homes, and you know, the, like when where, where the old working class could at least like posit the factory as like a place where you could have democracy, where like life could be improved by like different controlled factories. This new working class, like the thing that they want the most is to leave the factory and become a business owner. And, you know, like this, this probably sounds familiar to like us, right? Like this is, this is the old joke about, um, like about the, about the American working class, which is that everyone sees themselves as temporarily, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And like, yeah, you know, in, in modern China, it's like, yeah, okay. It's, it's like people consider themselves to be like temporarily embarrassed small business owners. And this stuff this 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 ideological self conception of like I'm I'm gonna work in the factory that I'm gonna become a small business owner is completely inimical to the formation of like the classical workers movement and the, 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 there hasn't been that kind of formation in China since and this this is not really a unique thing right the the, the death of that workers movement has seen a sort of like complete and total collapse of the demand for like democratic self management like everywhere across the entire world and. You know, incredibly stubbornly, like the, the working class, like refuses to sort of cohere itself in the factory. And so, in, in this sense, China is really just sort of late to the game. They 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 got slightly early. They got they got slightly later to the point that we're at now. You said there was going to be a a, a happier ending. For oh, this. The, 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 the happy ending was last episode. Oh, um, this episode is this, this episode's ending is really depressing. Well, I mean, okay, there's a slightly less depressing note, kind of. Okay, the thing that's less depressing here is that for my entire, literally my entire lifetime has been the U.S. lurching from one economic collapse to another, and the world, the world, like, the international economic system, like, I think I, I was born in, like, the middle of, like, the dot-com collapse, and then I got 2008, and then, like, there's been a bunch of economic collapses in the last, like, three years, and you know, the, the the whole system has like lurched from crisis to crisis to crisis, and that means that there, there's been an incredible, just like a, a, a rapidly increasing number of revolutions everywhere. Even even though the sort of like darker gore of the factory like has ceased to be this thing that like creates the working like the identity of the working class, and this means that you know, okay, so in in order to have some kind of mass movement, you you need some kind of collective identity to to mobilize around. 
And, you know, if, if, if you can't make this in the factory, the place where it's going to be made instead is the street. And th- this means in, in the last, you know, like 20-ish years, w- like w- with, without the sort of positive identity in the workplace to, 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 to cohere itself around, workers are really only able to sort of mobilize on a mass basis, like indirect opposition to a threat that can, that can, that can confront like everyone at the same time. And this is the only thing that can do this is really the state. And, you know, the state has the ability to, to increase the price of basic commodities and slash welfare benefits. And that becomes the, the only available enemy. And so, yeah, if, if you look at what revolutions have been in the last 20 years, it's a constant fight against the police because fighting the police is the only thing that can, that can allow you to create a new social identity, like a sort of, sort of collective identification. And, you know, and so this means that collective, like modern revolts, like everything we've seen over the last like four years the form that it takes is mass street movements and you know continuous confrontation with the police and you you get to literally see this with with occupy right o- occupy was originally like the, the 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 like the slogan occupy was about the argentinian factory occupations in in 2001 but then you know that stops like that's the end like just one like that that's that's the end of the whole cycle there's there's no more factory occupations um, well, actually that's true. You, you get one in bosnia herzegovina which is funny because it's like they they occupy a bunch of factories, but like they don't know what to do with them, and so you get just like a regular like occupy, like in like in, in the sort of like square occupation you'd get in like New York or whatever, where everyone's sort of like sitting in a circle and talking about stuff, but it's happening in a factory. But but they're not like trying to run production; they're not trying to do any of that stuff. They're just sort of like there in it. it the, the factory isn't is no longer this sort of like space of like creation and possibility that could like be turned into something new. It's just like a place where you go that's like indistinguishable from like a square and you know for the last 10 years it's like people people originally it was like it just left right so everyone's everyone's occupying squares but you know by by about 2014 people have figured out that you can't like it's it's almost impossible to hold a square if the police attempt to run you out and so this gets replaced with running street fights with the police but this you know th- this places everyone who's trying to do this in this incredibly dangerous bind because you know the the like the, the old workers' councils were able to bring down states. Like, largely they got crushed by outside militaries, but they were able to bring down states because, you know, there is an enormous amount of power in being able to control production. But the problem is that, like, you know, if, if you're in a square, right, like, you don't have the ability to do that. And w- w- without the sort of, without the factory occupations alongside them, th- there have been a lot of general strikes in the last four years. There's one in Peru, there's one in France, there's some in Hong Kong and Sudan, and every single one of them has been crushed. But, you know, but but this is a real problem, right? Because the current labor conditions aren't going to produce another wave of factory occupations. And so the way forward for anyone who, like, you know, wants to have a democracy in the workplace is completely unclear. And, and I think I think that's the actual legacy of Tiananmen. The, the, the workers who are assembled outside Tiananmen Square had already left their factories. And, you know, for... For, for all that they spoke the language of the old workers' movements, right? They, they spoke of democracy in the factory and one-man rule. They stood and fought and died like we do in the streets. They're this bridge between sort of the classical workers' movements and us. And, you know, they, they, they face the same revolutionary crisis that we face. The crisis of Papua and Palestine and Colombia and Iran and Myanmar and Hong Kong of... is this crisis of victory that's just beyond the horizon can't be grasped. You know, I, I don't think the people at Tiananmen have any answers to give us. I, like I, I don't think they do. I think they they ran they ran headlong into the crisis that we ran into, and they all died. 
Yeah, and I think ex- expecting answers from the dead is demanding too much of those who, before and after us, died fighting for liberation. And all we can really do now is find our own way, when with the names of the dead on our lips, build the world they died fighting for. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.